1: This week's Sound Off is brought to you by Audible.com. Do you guys like reading? Sometimes it can be a little cumbersome, right? I I find it hard sometimes to read books, newspapers, whatever. Sometimes you just don't have the time. Well, I got a great solution for you. Why not have somebody read a book to you? That's how lazy we've become, but not really. It's actually pretty cool. Audible has a huge selection of books, over 100,000 wrestling titles, crime novels science fiction novels, whatever floats your boat, all for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or other device, you can help support this podcast go to audibletrial.com slash they have a free trial for 30 days, you can sign up for right now, and as part of that trial you get a free audio book, whatever book you want that they have up in their store, check it out and you can give it a try, I think you're going to like it audibletrial.com slash for your free trial and audio book right now The Sala Monster sounds off.
2: Hulk Hogan has definitely been that rocket fuel that TNA needed. This doesn't
1: make any sense.
3: Your title belt is made of
1: leather. You're not a real vegan. Do am fat. You have been beat up properly. Woo! It's Sunday, February 9th, 2014. I am the Sala Monster, and this is the Sala Monster Sounds Off, episode 313 CM Punk is still gone from WWE. Hopefully the guy's alive. That's my question. Has anybody bothered to check to see whether the guy's living or breathing? <laughs> he should do a welfare check. But yeah, no, no CM Punk still. Nothing has really changed on that front. Want to give a PayPal shout-out up front here to Craig Brown. Craig, you are the only one to get a PayPal shout-out this week. Which is bad for me, but good for you. So thank you for the donation. If you want to make a donation to the show... You can do so on thesolomonster.com. That's where you can find the donation box. I appreciate everybody who does so. We got some great classic wrestling angles to talk about this week in our This Week in History segment later on in the podcast, so uh, I'm looking forward to that. There's a lot of good stuff there this week. I'll try to devote a little bit more time to that. Uh, But first, before we move on, I I have to bring this up. I know some of you have asked, and I I, uh, didn't say anything on the show last week, although I did mention it on on Twitter and Facebook. As many of you know, we were up for a Stitcher Award this year, the 2013 Stitcher Awards, up for Best Sports Commentary. We made it as a top six finalist out of thousands of other shows, and it was a very, very cool thing. And you guys, I have you guys to thank for that, for your nominations and all your support. So it was very cool to be nominated and just be in that kind of company. Well, the award ceremony took place on January 30th. We did not make the final cut. We did not win the award. That went to uh, the NFL, the beast that is the NFL. But I noticed a few days ago that they actually put audio of the ceremony up on Stitcher. There was an actual award ceremony that took place out in San Francisco. I, I couldn't make it out there. And they didn't stream it, they were tweeting results, and that's kind of how I was following along, and then I noticed, oh, they put they put audio up from the ceremony, so I figured, alright, I'll, I'll give it a listen, it'd be kind of cool to, you know, hear the show name mentioned among all these other ones, and I queued it up, and I listened to it, and I'm actually going to play some of the audio for you. The, uh, the lady who did the, the introductions, and I think she hosted the whole thing, she has her own podcast, she's actually called The Grammar Girl, which I think makes this even more ironic, and, and you'll understand what i mean when i play the audio back she's the grammar girl and i want you to listen to how she referred to the sound off here so let me let me play some of that audio for you right now
2: the next category is best sports commentary the first nominee is the dan patrick show (laughs) we have nfl around the league podcast Solo Monster Sound Off?
1: What? <laughs> what is that? Solo Monster Sound... Sa- now listen, if you don't listen to the podcast... like There have been other people who have pronounced it Solo Monster. Clearly she doesn't listen to the show. I'm not faulting her for that. But the fact that she would say Solo Monster and then Sound Off... A complete botch of the show name. And I just... I listened to that and I cringed and I just went, Ugh, oh, really?
2: Solo Monster Sound Off?
1: I love how she asked it. It's almost like she was asking it like in the form of a question, you know, like, solo monster sound off? I don't know. (laughs) I don't want to beat up on the girl. She seems like a very nice lady. I just thought it was amusing, and I thought you might like to hear it. Up on our YouTube channel right now, I posted a full review of the AJ Styles shoot interview that he did last month with HighSpots.com. It's called AJ Styles Leaving an Impact. They filmed the interview right at the beginning of the year when negotiations broke down with him in TNA. So that that's how far back it goes. Obviously, AJ has not returned to TNA. It is not a work. He is doing a lot of Ring of Honor dates and Ring of Honor TV tapings and who's to say AJ won't eventually be back in TNA. It's not like he closes the door on them in this interview, but it's uh, a full look at just all the different things that he touches on in terms of his TNA departure, whether or not he would go or want to go to WWE. And if there's been any interest on on WWE's part in him that he's aware of, Uh, the Claire Lynch storyline, one of the uh, great epic storylines, I guess you could say, in uh, TNA history. And what could have made it a success? AJ is adamant that this thing could have worked, and it could have been a big success. And he talks about why, uh, how he would have used Hulk Hogan, as opposed to the way Dixie Carter did. Uh, he rips a little bit on Rob Van Dam, which was kind of interesting, and, and gives his thoughts on Jeff Jarrett leaving TNA. So, like I said in the in the video, this is not a shoot interview where he, you know, burns a lot of bridges and just rips everybody to shreds. If that's the kind of interview you're looking for, probably save your money and, and put it towards something else. But it's a good interview. Uh, he is a little forgetful at times. And uh, anyway, if you want the full review, it's about 35, 36 minutes Head over to our YouTube channel. It's, my username on there is the monster All one word. It's a, a special edition of Sound Off Extra. I put these videos up every now and then. I can review books, DVDs, uh, pay per views here and there when I have the time. So uh, that's up. It's the uh, trailer on our channel right now. If you missed it, there's also a story on WWE.com this week. A very interesting story covering the Ring of Honor influence. So a full story on almost the history of Ring of Honor, really, and a lot of the current WWE stars who cut their teeth in Ring of Honor and became big stars down there, like Daniel Bryan, Antonio Cesaro, Seth Rollins. CM Punk CM Punk is not interviewed for the piece. He may have been. I don't know how far back these people were interviewed. So it's possible that they talked to Punk a few weeks, maybe before he left, and he was going to be the centerpiece, him and Bryan, of this story. And then he left, and so... There really is no mention of CM Punk in the story other than people like Gabe Sapolsky and I think Seth Rollins bringing up Punk by Name. There's a picture of, I think, Rollins working over Punk in a match. But other than those little incidental mentions here and there, there really is no Punk influence in this in the story, nor, nor would I expect there to be. They quote Colt Cabana in the story, and boy, you know, Scotty Goldman sure had a, a massive influence on WWE, didn't he? It's actually, it's a really weird thing with Cabana, because he's been featured now in a bunch of different stories on the WWE website over the uh, the past several months, past year, whatever. Uh, they did a feature a while back on wrestlers wearing those uh, Ribera Steakhouse jackets from Japan. It's like, if you ever work in Japan, Ribera Steakhouse is like this legendary place, and the owner gives all the wrestlers a free jacket, or at least he used to, I don't know if he does anymore, and... There's Colt Cabana in the piece wearing his Ribera Steakhouse jacket. It's like, you couldn't find a way to make this guy useful on television, but you'll plaster him all over your website. You know, clearly there's a disconnect between creative and the team that runs WWE.com. So, nice to see him on there. It's just very weird that this guy who's got, you know, a ton of charisma, he's not a bad wrestler, and he just went nowhere on television, and yet they see fit to interview him for all these different stories... Uh, Gabe Sapolsky is interviewed. That was kind of shocking. He claims he got a call from them only a couple of days before, uh, I guess, the article went up. It surprised him as much as anybody else, and he talked a lot about... Because, you know, again, he he was really the heart and soul of Ring of Honor for much of its run until he got booted, and then eventually they got sold to Sinclair Broadcasting, but it was Gabe's vision. Gabe was... Paul Heyman's protege in the old ECW and when ECW went away Ring of Honor really was the promotion more so than TNA that came along and filled that void it kind of filled that gap that was missing there was a hole for a lot of wrestling fans and Ring of Honor was never about the blood and the guts and the hardcore stuff I mean there would be some of that but it was really just about pure professional wrestling and that's how Ring of Honor built their reputation not unlike how tna built their reputation in their early years with guys like styles and joe and daniels and and that kind of core group of guys tna pay-per-views back in the day were were really really fun and people would you know if you wanted real wrestling you would watch a tna pay-per-view and not wwe you know that was how a lot of people felt and somewhere along the way they lost their identity and anyway Gabe is in there, he's talking about all these different guys, they plug his uh, website for Dragon Gate USA, they gave a plug to ROHwrestling.com, which has nothing to do with him anymore. What I find kind of interesting, and I brought this up to Webmaster Mike from SE Scoops when we were talking about this during the week, so this article comes out and they interview Gabe Sapolsky, and we also learned recently that WWE is imposing this new rule that no Indie shows no conventions are going to be allowed to run any city-owned facilities in the Bay Area next year or at least in in Santa Clara which is the site of next year's WrestleMania. They don't want these promotions piggybacking WrestleMania. So they must have it written into their deal with the city I guess uh, because Santa Clara would have put in a bid for WrestleMania and people say well how how can they do that? How can they enforce that? That isn't that against the law and all this stuff. I don't think it's against the law. And they obviously have some sort of agreement that stipulates that for you know whatever set period of time WrestleMania is coming to town, you guys can't run any city-owned facilities. You can run private facilities. You can run on the outskirts of Santa Clara, maybe in San Francisco, which is a little ways away. Uh, I don't know all the specifics of it. But that's that story came out a couple of weeks ago. And the point is... The one promoter who somehow was able to secure a facility and can run his his Dragon Gate stuff and evolve uh, promotion stuff next year in that area is Gabe Sapolsky. Just an observation on my part. Maybe he was lucky enough to lock his dates in before WWE started dropping the hammer. It's just a coincidence. It's, it's certainly possible. Uh, one other thing that I was talking to Mike about, and he thought that maybe there would be some sort of agreement between WWE and Ring of Honor to use their footage on the network, and, I, you know, I don't, I don't believe that. It wouldn't shock me if they wanted to maybe license some of the old Ring of Honor footage for use on the network, because they have so many guys who got their start or passed through Ring of Honor, whether it's Punk, Brian, Cesaro, Rollins. Uh, I'm not even going to count, you know, Cabana in that. Uh, and I know there, there have been other guys, I just can't think of them off the top of my head. And it would make sense that if they were going to do some sort of uh, compilation, retrospective on their careers... That they would want access to that footage. So I could see them coming to an agreement at some point with the Ring of Honor folks if they really wanted that. It would still be kind of a surprise to me, but they had Ring of Honor footage on the CM Punk DVD. So if they really want it that badly, they'll get it. They're not going to run Ring of Honor shows on the network or anything like that. We don't have to take a big leap to think, well, they did this article on ROH, so that must mean there's some sort of working agreement. I don't think there's any sort of working agreement. You're not going to see ROH shows on the new network or anything like that, especially since Ring of Honor is owned by a media company. It's owned by Sinclair Broadcasting, which owns a whole bunch of TV stations, and uh, Ring of Honor has TV. We know WWE doesn't play well with others who have TV. And It's one thing to be a little indie who you know performs in a certain part of the country, but uh, Ring of Honor is a little bit bigger than that. So, very interesting stuff. It was a good article. I would say if you missed it, go back and read it. It's pretty long, too. Uh, a lot of quotes from from Rollins and Bryan and guys like that. And Cesaro. Uh, Chris Hero. I don't know if Chris, Chris Hero was mentioned briefly, I think, by Cesaro when he mentioned their tag team, but obviously not a lot of mention of him since even though he was in developmental for a while, they, they cut him. Uh, but pretty good stuff, and uh, don't read anything more into it than that. We're not going to see Matt Hardy and the stars of ROH appearing on the WWE Network anytime soon. Monday Night Raw this past week was live from Omaha, Nebraska. We'll go through the good, the bad, and the ugly, some random Raw observations here. There was no CM Punk, as I mentioned earlier. He is is still gone. There was no John Cena. There was no Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman. So there was a lot of star power missing from the show last Monday. Cena got poked in the eye by Randy Orton at a house show. Uh, He finished the match, and then I guess his eye swelled shut later, which which is kind of a problem. I guess they didn't want him on TV looking like he was in a fight. God forbid the guy looks tough on TV. So don't worry. Pretty boy John Cena will be back this Monday in the main event against Randy Orton. That's the big main event coming up on Raw this week. I hope they have better luck in Los Angeles than they did in Pittsburgh. That's all I have to say about that. It was L.A. where Daniel Bryan beat John Cena for the title and got screwed over by Triple H and Randy Orton, so I think they may have a tough night ahead of them if I had to take a guess. Also, there were some stories floating around about fans being ejected for chanting CM Punk's name, which which made no sense to me. I mean, it's one thing to bring a sign that they don't like or that has some obscenities on it or something like that, and they do... They do confiscate a lot of signs, and then they go on television, and they talk about freedom of speech, and it's just such bullshit, and it's so stupid, but they did not throw anybody out for chanting CM Punk's name, so it was all BS. I think it was something that got started by a bunch of people who just wanted to stick it to WWE, and there may have even been an agreement in advance on like social media, hey, you know we're going to do this, we're going to spread stories about this, so stupid. Seriously, of all the things that you could criticize WWE for and chant because, you know, you're not happy with what you're seeing on television and they're not doing this right and they're not doing that right, you really have to make up a bunch of bullshit stories and pretend like, oh, they're rejecting people for chanting CM Punk's name. You know, what? What does this company come to? It's like a Nazi regime. Like, give me a break. You know, it's just so stupid. People have no lives. Going through some of the things on the show here. The Shield beat... Uh, Langston, Kofi, and Ray. Six-man tag. Reigns nailed the Superman punch. He was setting up for a spear on Big E when Dean Ambrose made the blind tag. Pinned Langston with his headlock DDT. So more tension being built up between the two of them with Rollins kind of caught in the middle trying to play Peacemaker as they head into their match with the Wyatt family at the Elimination Chamber. Bad News Barrett. I have Bad News Barrett here in my notes. He came out to tell us that he had bad news for the 111 million people who watched this year's Super Bowl. And no, not not that it was a shit game, which it was. He said, because everybody ate too much, they probably will not survive to see next year's game. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
2: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: So, that's nice. Then Jerry Lawler stands up, and he tells Barrett that he had some bad news for him. That being that hopefully next week, Barrett will not be around. And then he laughed, and he sat down. And that was the end of the segment. What the hell was the point of that? It's just, it's unbelievable to me. Like, I watch the JBL and Cole show on YouTube. They're actually, they have a storyline on the JBL and Cole YouTube show, which runs anywhere from four to five minutes, maybe six minutes, every single week. That's all it is. It's just, it's a a stupid YouTube show that runs for five minutes, and they actually have a storyline that they've been consistent with over the last few weeks JBL has this nephew called Clem, and they're looking. You know, Cody Rhodes is on the lookout. He's searching for Clem Layfield. And you no, know, the bad news, Barrett persona got its start on the JBL and Cole show. It was just something funny and dumb for him to do. But I'm watching the JBL and Cole show, and there's bad news, Barrett, and he's great. And then I watch Ron, I get this. You know, it's like I'm afraid I've got some bad news. The WWE writers are all brain dead. That's the bad news. They're all freaking brain dead. Like just amazing how in one place he's so entertaining and in the another place it's just awful it's absolutely terrible garbage and uh i don't know who's writing or scripting the jbl and cole show or coming up with these ideas and these stories i'm sure the guys have a little more freedom also to kind of say what they want there's not an actual script for it i don't think but whoever's in charge of that show why don't you ask them for some help why don't you why don't you let them book bad news barrett on raw how about that it's like when The Rock would come in, The Rock would have his own guy, Brian Gowertz, who used to be the head writer for Raw. Like, Brian was his guy. I think even after they got rid of him as the head writer when Rock came back last year, he had Brian helping him out on his his jokes and his material. Like, he had a guy. Well, I say give Bad News Barrett a guy. That being whoever's in charge of making Bad News Barrett fun and entertaining on YouTube and let him handle Bad News Barrett's segments. Because his stuff on the main roster sucks. It's doing him no favors. This whole gimmick is just a complete waste of the guy on television. And if you insist on giving him this crappy gimmick, which does have the potential to at least be funny, I'm not saying it's going to get him anywhere in terms of his career, but it certainly can be funny and entertaining. I think the YouTube show proves that. Let let that person, whoever's responsible, script his segments on the show. The writing is so Bad. It's not even funny, it's just, it's cringe-inducing, and, and why Lawler had to be involved, unless they're building up a match with him and Lawler, and I can't see them letting Lawler wrestle ever again on their show, this was just a complete waste of time. The steel cage that they used for the tag team title match got stuck as it was being lowered, and the New Age Outlaws were making their entrance. It was actually hilarious watching Road Dog not know what to do. He's kind of asking the ref, like, what's going on here? What do I do? What do I stand? Uh, one of our followers on Twitter had a great suggestion. Raise the ring. <laughs> they could have raised the ring if they couldn't lower the cage. But thankfully, they cut the commercial. When they came back, it was fixed. See, now, if they would have used the old blue bar steel cage from back in the day... You know They used to have to construct that at ringside instead of hanging it from the ceiling. This never would have happened. Uh, to be honest, this was one of the weakest Cody and Goldust matches I've seen since they started teaming. Crowd was very quiet for much of it. They just didn't care. Uh, it's very weird to see the New Age Outlaws come out and do their babyface entrance and then have to play heels. And I think it's confusing for the fans also, especially the fans who don't remember them from back in the day. They see them now couple of old guys who I guess used to be something special. And they come out and they get the whole crowd into their entrance and singing along with them. And and then there are a bunch of chicken shit heels that I guess were supposed to boo. I could see where some you know, newer, I could see where fans in general would be very confused by that. Uh, the big spot in this match was Cody Rhodes replicating his moonsault off the top of the cage that he used at MSG back in December. Uh, he had Antonio Cesaro catch him on that one and somehow managed not to kill himself. Not so here on this show. He launched himself from the top of the cage into the air. So however tall that cage was, let's say the cage was 8 feet, because it's really not that tall. Let's say the cage is 8 feet. He added, I'd say, another 2 feet with that leap. And poor Road Dog down below is probably thinking to himself, I don't want this kid to kill himself, but there's no freaking way I'm catching him on this moonsault. So Cody got part of Road Dogg's left arm on the way down, and he crashed hard into the mat, landed right on his leg. He looked like he killed himself, and as it turned out, he did hurt himself. He injured the the MCL in his knee, and he's wearing a brace now. I think he's still wrestling, but he's wearing a brace on his knee. So after executing this amazing move, what happens? Well, he staggers back to his feet. He's kind of crouched over. And Billy Gunn sees an opportunity, and he catches him with the Famouser. And he pins him. What a goof. That'll teach him to take unnecessary risks. It cost them the tag team titles. And for all the people ragging on Road Dog for not catching Cody, are you out of your fucking minds? Road Dog is 44 years old. This guy is coming straight down from 10 or 11 feet in the air. And you expect him to stand in perfect position and catch him? As it was pointed out to me, Jesse Sorensen in TNA almost died trying to catch Zima Ion on a moonsault. And that was from the top rope. This was from the top of a cage. If they wanted somebody to catch Cody. They should have put him back in there with the real Americans and had Cesaro catch him. But I laugh. It's like, you expect Road Dogg to catch this guy from that height? Are you high? I don't blame the guy at all. I mean, shit, if that were me, I'd have done the same thing. I would have run. I would have run in the opposite direction. Titus O'Neil and Zack Ryder had a match. Titus's first match as a heel. Middle of the match, out walks the Miz. He walks right over to the announcers. He grabs a headset. He complains that Titus and Zack have a match on Raw. We have We have television time for these two guys, but not for me. I don't have a match. And then he threw the headset down and he went to the back. And poor Zack Ryder, you know, this guy finally gets some TV time on Raw and the Miz walks out in the middle of it to complain. What a jerk. Looks like this will be the new direction for the Miz. I say I say great, you know, maybe they'll actually keep him heel this time instead of flip-flopping him back and forth. I hear rumors now of maybe a Miz Dolph Ziggler Disgruntled Tag Team you know, between this and that promo that Ziggler did on the app, complaining about politics and all that kind of stuff being held down, I, I could see it. And you know what? Why not? I saw the two of these guys do an interview together at the uh, the Cavaliers game a few weeks ago with uh, Chris Van Vele. Both guys are from Cleveland, and I think every time Ziggler goes back there, you know, Chris Van Vele of the the local uh, news station does an interview with him. He does these video interviews that pop up on YouTube. They're like twenty minutes long. They're very, very good interviews. But Ziggler is is maybe a little too outspoken. It wouldn't surprise me if it was actually one of those interviews he did with Chris that got him in the doghouse many months ago. Obviously, he said something to piss off the wrong person. Uh, Whether he said something about Randy Orton or Triple H, I don't know. I don't know what it was. So, he's interviewing Miz and Ziggler together, and I actually thought they had some good charisma together. I think a Miz-Dolph team could work. You know, Dolph's not sniffing the world title... Anytime soon. Not not with there being only one belt now. That's just not going to happen. And Miz shouldn't sniff the world title ever again. So at least that would give them something to do. I say don't dismiss this just yet. I think this could work if, if they do it. You know, We'll see on television if they actually do put them together. I mean, that was just the rumor of the week. If they do, I'm willing to give it a shot, see where it goes, and who knows? Maybe they turn out to be a, a really great tag team together. And they do that for six months or a year, and now they've kind of built themselves back up to respectability, where when they do the split, maybe they'll actually do something worthwhile with Ziggler. With Miz, you know, if they do, they do. If they don't, they don't. But with Ziggler, Ziggler has more upside than Miz, in my opinion. So if it gets him there, great. We had the dance-off. A lot of you guys had a lot of venom towards this dance-off, people calling it the Worst segment, or one of the worst segments in Raw history. And yes, the crowd did not seem to know what to make of the Emma dance. This was Emma's official debut on Raw. Let me backtrack a little bit here. It was Fandango and Summer a against Santino in a dance off. Santino comes out, he looks in the crowd, he says, I'm going to pick somebody to be my partner. He sees Emma, brings her into the ring. So all four of them are in the ring. And they have this dance off. Fandango dances a little bit. Santino does, and Summer Ray dances for all of five seconds, and then Emma does her Emma dance, which anybody who watches NXT knows all about the Emma dance. And this segment was not a good segment. I'm not gonna am not gonna try to pretend like it was anything really special. It, it was it was crap. But to insinuate that this was even close to being the worst segment or one of the worst segments, top ten worst segments in the history of Raw. Have you not been watching this show for more than six months? This wasn't even top 20 worst in the history of Raw. People need to calm down. I was very happy to hear them letting her use her NXT music. I love her NXT music. I say, you know, give it a few weeks and trust me, believe me, you will see people getting into the Emma dance, okay? Emma will get over. On NXT, it's not like she debuted one week dancing like that. It's something that took time to develop. The crowd at Full Sail started to get into it. And now she's got this cult following down there. And yeah, they put her on TV one week here on, on Raw... And right away they have her doing the dance. That's the problem with some of these NXT guys... When they debut them on the main roster. It's the same reason why Bo Dallas will go nowhere... If they debut him with the current gimmick that he has... As this cheesy babyface who's actually a heel. Okay, He got that way because on NXT... He was the babyface champion who people hated. He was the John Cena of Full Sail. So over time, he morphed into this condescending heel who masquerades as a babyface. You know, he rebelled against the fans. He doesn't give a shit about the fans. He only pretends to. If he debuts on Raw like that without any backstory, he's dead in the water. It's almost like when they bring these guys up, they've got to start them from scratch all over again assuming that most people who watch the show never watched NXT which is probably true and build those same gimmicks back up for the larger audience i think that's what they're going to have to do the same goes for emma you know plus with emma she comes out on NXT blowing bubbles she does this thing where from the outside she reaches up and grabs the middle rope and then pulls herself backwards into the ring like like skinning the cat and she barely makes it but that's part of the gimmick you know it's part of her act and the fans love it uh, we'll see if she incorporates any of that into her TV character. You know, Big E had the five count on NXT, and they don't let him use it on Raw for some unknown reason, so it's possible none of that stuff will ever make TV. Uh, the thing that's going to get over, though, is not some stupid dance, though. It's the fact that the girl can wrestle. The fact that her finish, for example, the emma lock, looks painful as all hell. looks a hell of a lot more painful than John Cena's finish. These are things I think that the fans are going to appreciate if, if they actually let her wrestle. If they let her wrestle, she could do all the goofy comedy she wants. If she's nothing more than just a goofy comedy character who can't wrestle because they give her two minutes of TV time, well, th- then I'd worry. But if they actually let her wrestle and do some impressive stuff in the ring, and then slowly but surely you incorporate these other elements into her character, whether it's the bubbles or the you know climbing into the ring and almost not making it, and then the dance, uh, she could be something big. Her and Paige, both of them can be something big. They, they're the two women who can lead that division. I mean, AJ is great, and AJ, you know, I hope they keep AJ around forever. Uh, but these two girls going forward, I think years from now, are, are the two that are going to be able to carry that division if they let them. We'll see if they do. Batista came out for an in-ring promo. It's hard to believe that this guy actually dresses himself. His idea of fashion for a 45-year-old man is uh, is something to behold. There was a great Batista story leading up to this. You know, oftentimes before a heel comes out, especially one who, let's say, is getting a lot of cheers, uh, they will air a dark promo for the live audience with the heel up on the big screen talking crap about the city or their local sports team or whatever, just to make sure they get booed. Doesn't always work, you know, but they try. Well, here they tried the opposite with Batista. They had him up on the Tron. This was off the air. This is what people who were in the building said. Uh, This is before he came out for his segment with Del Rio. And he's up there on that screen practically begging for the crowd in Omaha to cheer for him. He said, I'm a big sports fan, but most of all, I'm a big baseball fan. That's why I'm excited to be in Omaha, Nebraska, home of the College World Series. And then he said, I know it's cold outside, but let's heat it up in here. And I I hope that didn't come off as corny in the arena as it did reading it just then. It's like, why not just have him stand there with a sign that says, Please like me. Please, please like me. So he comes out. He still gets a mixed reaction. Ever since the Rumble, he gets a mixed reaction. He goes to speak. He gets interrupted by Alberto Del Rio. Del Rio attacks him. Batista fights back. Del Rio runs away. They're going to have a match at the Elimination Chamber. You know, for someone who was a top guy, went away for four years, won the Royal Rumble, I don't know. He seems awfully cold right now. You know, it's not his fault. He hasn't done anything wrong. I still like Big Dave. I don't hate the guy at all. You know, it's just, it's not his time. You know, I think that's what people resent the most. It's not his time. They feel it's time for other people. And here's this guy coming back... One of Triple H's buddies, right? Big guy. Not as big as he used to be, physically, but still a big guy. 45 years old. And they're taking it out on him. It's just, you know, it's just how it is, I guess. Naomi beat Oksana. Diva Stopwatch had this at 4 minutes 55 seconds. So... If you notice over the last few weeks, like certainly this past Monday and the Monday before, which I think was over five minutes, they they seem to be giving the Divas matches a little more time. The whole reason I started the whole Divas stopwatch gimmick last year, the year before, whenever it was, was because it was comical. They would have these women out there, multiple women, and they would give them 30 seconds, a minute, like it actually used to be far worse. Literally, I'm not even joking, they would give them 30 seconds, their entrances would last longer than the match. And there has been a progression over time. I don't think it has anything to do with three hours, because they were still giving these women no time even after they first went to three hours. But they seem to be giving them more time, four minutes, five minutes. They could do better than that. They could have, you know, two women's matches per show. If they actually, I mean, they have women who could work. That's why I'm hopeful, you know, with Emma coming up and when they bring up Paige, and they have other women who could work, it'd be nice for them to actually give them some more time and do at least 18 plus this one major storyline like this whole total divas versus non-total divas fucking crap what kind of storyline is that yeah that's not a real storyline i'm talking about you know like what they did with trish and mickey back in the day or or come up with an actual storyline or a storyline twist or a storyline reason to put two women together and let that story carry out over the course of several weeks and use two women who could work use two women who the crowd is into and believe me, you can have people genuinely interested in women's wrestling. It, it's it's doable. It's not impossible. I know some people think it is, but it is not impossible. If you have the right story and you have the right people, you can make it work. So they've been giving them a little bit more time, which is good to see. Uh, th- there was a, a brutal spot in this match where Naomi is in there with Oksana. She is trying to get Oksana over for a sunset flip. I don't know what the hell Oksana was supposed to do, if she was supposed to, you know, fall over, if she was supposed to reverse it maybe and have Naomi's legs cradled forward for the pin. Uh, She decided to drop her knee down right into Naomi's eye socket, which I'm sure did not feel very good at all. And on Twitter, Naomi even mentioned that she almost lost her eye altogether. So this, this had the potential to be... A very, very serious injury. As it is, she got a a bruised orbital bone, which is not a fun injury, and a scratch on her cornea, which sounds like it sucks. Uh, AJ was on commentary talking about Naomi. I guess Naomi will be her next opponent. Uh, Not sure when. I guess it depends on how fast she recovers from her injury. Uh, I don't know who AJ is going to face at WrestleMania, but the preview for the next season of Total Divas says that she's losing the title to somebody from the cast. They basically spoil the whole thing. Uh, so, AJ is losing the belt at WrestleMania. It's just a matter of to who. You know, would they hold off the Naomi match? It seems like a long time to wait to hold off for that match. I mean, I figure if Naomi is ready to go, they'll throw it on the Elimination Chamber. Um, we've already seen AJ and the Bellas. I have no interest in seeing them again. So, you know, I don't know if they're going to take the title off her and put it on somebody from the show. <laughs> I mean, Eva Marie? Come on, you know they would totally do that. So, I, I guess we'll see. I don't know. I don't know. There's Natalia, but again, that's played out. How many title shots did Natalia get? Natalia's on NXT more than she is Raw. I don't, I don't want to see that. We had Randy Orton against Daniel Bryan in the main event. One of the longest matches in Raw history, almost 27 minutes. An awesome match. Just a great wrestling match. The story here was the psychology, you know, working over certain body parts like Bryan's shoulder. Uh, Orton did a great job. Bryan did a great job. I don't see how you could hate this if you are a fan of wrestling. I could have done without the constant talk of, oh, you know, if Brian wins, he'll be the face of WWE. It's like, who gives a shit? Who the face of WWE? I am so sick to death of that aspect of this whole story. It's like, focus on the title. How about that? You just unified this championship a couple of months ago. It's supposed to be the, the biggest thing in the world, right? Why don't you focus on that? Without it, being the face of the company should be meaningless. The face of your company should be your champion. It was a non-title match, so I guess they just wanted to have something on the line. I just thought it was stupid. Stupid, stupid, stupid. When will they realize that the fans do not care who the face of your company is? That's not why we watch. That's for your marketing team to worry about. Not John Doe, who's there with his two kids to see a wrestling show. Okay, They don't give a crap. Believe me. Brian got the clean win with the flying knee. Kane tried to interfere, but it backfired. So when the match ended, he got his revenge. And he and Orton both laid out Brian. Brian also got a win over Antonio Cesaro on SmackDown. Another match worth going out of your way to see. If for no other reason, you've got to see Brian's uh, version of La Mystica into a Yes Lock. Awesome stuff. Uh, so a good week if you're a Daniel Bryan fan some uh, great wrestling pair of big wins for him even if he was laid out at the end of both Betty White is going to be the special guest on Raw this upcoming Monday night which I am looking forward to I like Betty White a lot and I made the comment on Twitter you know now that Mae Young is gone somebody's got to step in and give us our fix of, of you know spunky old lady and believe me that's what Betty White is so I don't have a problem with her being on the show at all and On the other hand, I do have a problem with John Cena versus Randy Orton. But what are you going to do? It is what it is. It's part of the story where Randy Orton has to face each of his opponents in the Elimination Chamber in singles matches between now and the pay-per-view. He had Bryan on Raw. He had Christian on SmackDown. He was going to get John Cena at some point. I guess they want a big main event for L.A. I, I still say, in the L.A. market, you're asking for trouble. But for the viewers, hey, it'll be entertaining, I think, if, if the crowd decides to hijack the match. We'll see. That's your main event on Monday. Some other news and notes. First, a correction from last week. Turns out Extreme Rules on May 4th will not be in Seattle. Uh, instead, it will take place at the IZOD Center in New Jersey, site of last year's post-WrestleMania Raw, with Dolph Ziggler's cash-in of the uh, Money in the Bank contract to win the world title. That was where the fans crapped all over Randy Orton and Sheamus, and where Noah Mark, our own Noah Mark, started a wave, pretty good wave too, I have to say. I think it had at least five or six revolutions around the the arena. The announcers acknowledged it on television. The whole the whole nine yards. Uh, Ryback turned heel on John Cena that night. That was a fun night to be in the building, and that crowd actually won a Slammy Award last year. That's how fun you know that crowd was. And it's it's funny to me now to see all this talk about crowds hijacking the shows and how disrespectful they are and how WWE and a lot of the wrestlers, you know, Randy Orton supposedly also very, very upset with these crowd reactions and stuff like that. It's Randy Orton's match more often than not that gets crapped on. I mean, they didn't crap on Orton and Bryan on Monday because of Brian, I'm guessing. Uh, but like I said, Orton and Cena this Monday? I don't know. So you got a lot of very upset people that now all of these crowds are trying to mimic that new jersey crowd from the post-wrestlemania raw last year and you know we're supposed to feel sorry for wwe is that what we're supposed to feel because they're the ones who gave a fucking slammy award to that crowd what did you expect would happen when you do something like that when you glorify it and you give them a fucking slammy award every other crowd in the country is going to want to do the same thing they're going to say hey we could be the next New Jersey crowd. Let's be loud. Let's be stupid. Let's chant for this guy. Let's chant for that guy. Maybe we'll win the award next year. They're all auditioning. They're they're auditioning to be nominated for a Slammy Award next year. That's not anybody's fault but WWE's fault. You want to point your finger and blame somebody for all that? Blame WWE. I don't feel sorry for them at all. We have a spoiler here on Undertaker's return. We have a return date for The Undertaker. So if you don't want to know, skip ahead by two minutes. Undertaker is expected back on the post-elimination chamber edition of Raw February 24th. That's the same night the network launches. And I believe, I could be wrong, I believe Brock Lesnar is booked for that show as well. So if that's going to be the Mania match this year, I assume that's the show where they would shoot the initial angle. And Over the Edge 1999 is in fact going to be airing on the WWE Network. I know there were a lot of questions, not just about the Chris Benoit stuff, but would they air the same pay-per-view where Owen Hart died. Uh, Whether edited, unedited, I mean, I figured if they aired it, it certainly wasn't going to be unedited, and we found out for sure WWE has issued a statement that the pay-per-view will be an edited version removing all references to Owen Hart's death. Statement reads, WWE Network will be airing the 1999 Over the Edge pay-per-view. However, portions of the event will be edited out of respect for Owen Hart. So if you've never seen the event before, Uh, There were other matches. There was a title change on the show. Undertaker beat Steve Austin to win the WWE Championship. Uh, They did a little bit of a swerve there with the McMahons at the end. So, in that respect, I guess it was a newsworthy show. I have no interest in going back to watch it, though. It just... You know, after Owen died, they had two more matches. Rock and Triple H and the Austin vs. Undertaker title match. And even though they tried their hardest, JR and King did a great job. They tried to just ignore it and pretend like it didn't happen and just move on with the show. You know, it was so hard. It was just it's depressing to watch. It's just this dark cloud that kind of hangs over everything. And it's been a while since I've gone back and watched it, but I remember one of the one of the really striking things about that show, and maybe I was just reading a little too much into it. I think I there are other people who would agree with me on this. If you watch when the Undertaker makes his entrance, for that main event uh, I guess Pat Patterson was supposed to be the special referee Undertaker chokeslams Patterson gives him a very weak looking chokeslam and as Patterson's kind of being rolled out of the ring and Undertaker is standing there the glass shatters Austin's music hits and the camera very briefly maybe for like two seconds cuts back to the Undertaker the Undertaker was doing his demonic Lord of Darkness persona during this period with the Ministry and all that and they cut back to a shot Of The Undertaker's face. And he looks like he's about to cry. I've never seen The Undertaker look like that in my life. Never on television. Never in any sort of personal appearance. Like I I can imagine in real life. Obviously he's a flesh and blood human being. He shows real human emotions. He just does a very good job of, of shielding that. And hiding that from the general public. But they showed that shot. And he looked like he was about to just burst into tears. And it was really telling. When you see something like that. You know these guys are affected. I mean, how could you not be? So, if you've never seen the show before, maybe you don't have that attachment to it. You don't remember it. You're young, whatever. It probably does. You don't. You don't understand what the big deal is about this whole thing. They'll edit it off the show. It'll be like it never happened. Uh, me, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can go back and watch that show. But if you want to, you will have the option to do so. Time for the NXT review. I want to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Chance Massey. Big shout out to him. Thank you for the hookup. In case you uh, didn't know, NXT is now back on Hulu Plus. Uh, they may have it up now for free many days later on uh, you know the free version on Hulu, but for the first day or two, I guess now they've moved it back to Hulu Plus being that it's going to be on the network in a few weeks. And I wasn't paying $7.99 for Hulu Plus just to watch NXT for two weeks. I mean, I like NXT, but yeah, that's not going to happen. So thank you to Chance, though, for the uh, the hookup. We had Sin Cara opening match against Alexander Rusev. Sin Cara and his blue lights. Yes, they actually had the blue lights for this match on NXT. And uh, he went up against Alexander Rusev. I noticed, uh, One of the things I notice about Rusev now in these matches, and maybe he was doing it before and I just didn't realize it until now, he he slaps the body part that he's going to use before actually using it, so he'll smack his head before he does a headbutt, for example, that sort of thing. So uh, I don't know, just a little thing about about Rusev. It's funny when I think of the very first time I saw him on NXT, his hair was all wild, he was you know he had the uh, the leather old Tarzan outfit, he just looked like something that they plucked out of the wilderness somewhere. I would imagine probably not unlike Gorilla Monsoon when he first debuted. When Gorilla Monsoon first debuted many years ago in the in in WWE, he was billed as being from, you know, Manchuria, and he was like some jungle beast they plucked out of there. Couldn't speak English. Just this monster of a man. That's kind of what Rusev reminded me of at first. And from then to now, you see the the progression—that's the best word for it—the progression of his character. Now he's very well groomed. Now he's wearing like these these MMA tights, and he's got the wraps around his feet, and he's got all of these little ticks and these different things that he does in his matches. And uh, it's been very interesting to follow. And he's—he's he's not bad, you know. I wasn't very impressed when I first saw him. He was a big, thick guy, but there really didn't seem to be much more to it than that. It's like, oh, okay, they like their big guy, so they're giving this guy a shot. Um, he's not. A great wrestler or anything like that, but he's perfectly fine for the role that they have in mind for him. I think he's uh, debuting on Raw this Monday. He'll be making his in ring debut on TV. Uh, first appearance in the ring since the Royal Rumble. So uh, we'll see whether he does well or whether the crowd craps all over him and then they just move him back down to a mid card role and they forget about the guy. Hopefully they give him a chance. He beats Inkara here with the accolade as uh, Lana. His Russian manager looked on in approval. Emma beat Alicia Fox with her Emma Lock. Pretty good match. She cut a promo afterwards, wishing Paige well as she recovers from her injury and reminding everybody that she gets the next crack at the Women's Championship. Her and Paige are going to have a match for the title on the February 27th show. For those of you who don't know, I don't think that's formally been announced yet, but that is a match scheduled for that show. The BFFs ran out. To attack her for no apparent reason, Alicia Fox joined in, so now we have this four-on-one attack on poor Emma. Bailey and Natalia. suddenly come out to make the save, and then all the baby faces dance to Emma's music because Emma's music is awesome. Mason Ryan beat Sylvester LeFort in a uh, short match. Not sure what the point of this was, other than I guess that means Mason Ryan won't be working for Lafort anytime soon. Uh, but then when the match was over, they had a backstage promo at Laforte and it made it seem like... This, this storyline, this feud is going to continue It's just like, oh god Can we please be done with this whole Mason Ryan, Sylvester LaForte garbage uh, Mason Ryan has noticeably shrunk, by the way I wish I wish I could see like a split screen comparison of what he looked like When he debuted on Raw all those years ago with the new Nexus To what he looks like now It's like the body weight of a whole other person Just melted right off the guy It's just, it's incredible Tyson Kidd beat Aiden English, thanks to a distraction by Big Kaz, Colin Cassidy. He put on uh, Aiden English's beret and his scarf, and he was parading around the ring with it, which upset the artiste a great deal. And uh, when he turned around, Tyson Kidd nailed him with a buff blockbuster from the top rope and got the pin. Adrian Neville and Corey Graves was our main event. Most of the match was just Corey Graves working over Neville's knee to set up for his lucky 13th submission, but... He never went for it. He never even tried to put his finishing hold on him. So I don't know what the hell the point of this was. Uh, You know, and then with a bum knee, Neville comes back with a missile drop kick, of all things, and then he does his red arrow off the top rope and gets the pin. It's like, what? We just spent 10 minutes watching Corey Graves methodically torturing this man's leg. And out of nowhere, he does his wacky leap off the top and wins? This this was boring. This was uh, it. Just made no sense. So yeah, I'm not not a fan of this main event here. Bo Dallas made his way out to the ring afterwards, looking like serious Bo. And before he could speak or attack Neville, looked like he was gonna maybe attack Neville. Neville was down in the corner. Uh, we hear the King of Kings theme, and out comes Triple H. He announces that on February 27th on the WWE Network, the match between Neville and Dallas will be the first ever NXT ladder match for the championship, which the crowd popped big for. And then we got a stare down between the two opponents with Triple H conveniently placed right in the middle as we fade to black. It's like, really? Even on NXT, Triple H...
2: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: H has to be the focus as we go off the air. Was that really necessary? Why couldn't you just leave the ring and just let these two guys have their stare down? Why, why do you have to be right in the middle of it? I don't know. It just kind of irked me. So, uh, I don't know. Pretty ho-hum show this week. Not a bad show. Just, you know, kind of boring. Not Not terribly exciting. Maybe they're just killing time until the 27th. You know, I am looking forward to that show. I have to say the matches that they have announced and even the matches they haven't officially announced yet that I know are are coming up at the tapings, you know, in the next week or so, they'll announce them. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that NXT special on the 27th, maybe more so even than the pay-per-view coming up. I've got high expectations for that show, and I think we're going to see a new champion crowned. I think, I think it's time. I think the stage is set. You want to come out of the gate with this live special and you want to end on a happy note and you want something big to happen on that show. I think I made a comment a few weeks ago on the podcast that I could see Paige losing the women's title to Emma. And maybe you do like a heel turn with Paige after the match where she doesn't take it very well. Cause Paige, if you look at her, she's really not a baby face. She just, she acts like a complete brat. People like her, people cheer for her. She's already very heelish. You know, And they have a lot of people making appearances on the show. Paul Heyman being among them. I still would love the idea of a Heyman girl. All oh, we hear about her Heyman guys. What about a Heyman girl? I could definitely see Paige as a Heyman girl if they want to bring her up to the main roster. Uh, or even if they don't want to bring her up just yet, but you have Heyman make appearances at some of the NXT tapings in her corner, and you do that for a while, see how it goes, and then maybe bring that to the main roster. However you want to do it. Uh, That was one idea that I had. And I think switching the title from Bo to Neville at this point, Bo's had the title for 200-something days. I think it's been long enough. I think they'll pull the trigger on a a title change on that show. Check this out, guys. For you, the listeners of The Sound Off, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial so that you can check out their service. And it's a quality service. I wouldn't be mentioning it on my show if it wasn't. They have a bunch of wrestling books to choose from in audio form, including Lex Luger's book, Dusty Rhodes' book, Hulk Hogan's book is available with narration from the Hulkster himself. There's even one that chronicles the rise of the late Junkyard Dog in Mid-South, which sounds really interesting. You can choose any one of those free by trying audible.com. If you commute to work or if you like listening to things other than music at the gym, I know a lot of people listen to this podcast that way. It seems to me an audiobook would absolutely make sense. To get one, make sure you go to audibletrial.com slash It's another way to show your support for the sound and you get something free in return. Can't beat that. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash Time for the TNA Report. Their UK tour reportedly going very well. Good for locker room morale. Lots of big energetic crowds. I'm sure will do that to you. They will make you generally happier than you would be in front of let's say 700 people. Uh, Samoa Joe was said to have given a very emotional speech on the bus one night going back to the hotel about how this tour had no prima donnas no whiners or complainers and how proud he was of everybody and then you know the wrestlers started chanting Joe 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 when he was finished like a pep rally or a political rally or something like that. So it's. You know, cool to see that everyone seems to be happy and everything went uh, very well for them on the UK tour. Uh, This was their second international edition of Impact. This was taped from uh, Glasgow from the week prior. Hot open to the show. They went right into it. The Monsters Ball match between Abyss and Eric Young. It's a basic hardcore match. You know, thumbtacks got brought in by Abyss. Eric Young gave him a sunset flip powerbomb. He came off the top and he powerbombed Abyss Right onto the tax. He uh, recovered from that. He grabbed Janice, his uh, board with the nails in it, which I think on commentary they made even a, a comment about this, how he must have somehow gotten it across the border through customs and all that. It's like, all right, at least they addressed it and how silly the whole thing is. So he has his board with the nails in it, and he goes to use it, but EY unmasks him before he has a chance to, and he reveals Joseph Park. Minus the teeth, because again, Abyss has no teeth, he has he has two teeth on the bottom of his mouth, he has fangs, that's what Abyss has, so that's the big reveal, after 20 months, 21 months, how long has this been going on for? Almost two years, it's been going on for a long time, this storyline, we finally see that in fact, Joseph Park and Abyss are one and the same, he gives Eric Young a black hole slam, pins him, he picks up a shard of glass, broken glass from the Ground stares at himself, finally realizing who he really is. So I guess rest in peace, Joe Park. I get who knows. Knowing this company, he'll pop up next week like nothing ever happened. But I assume this is it for the Joe Park character. And Abyss, the monster, is here to stay as a heel. Bobby Roode wants his title shot against Magnus. Dixie Carter instead signs him to a match with Samoa Joe, where if he beats Joe, he will get the next title shot. MVP came out for his first interview. MVP, of course, is the new investor on TNA television, the new babyface investor. Uh, he got you know a response worthy of a star uh, on this show. I don't blame MVP for wanting to make his debut in the UK. I think he he probably knew he was going to get big reactions from these crowds. These crowds see him as a star. He came from WWE. Uh, I don't know that they were cheering him because of his time in New Japan. It's just a guess talked about how over the course of his career I guess since leaving WWE and whatnot he had made some very wise investments and I guess there were some other people who also wanted to see change in TNA and they all kind of partnered up and that's how he was able to become this new uh, investor he says TNA has been mismanaged that's why they haven't been able to reach their full potential you know look this is their storyline if if it ends up with Les Dixie Carter on television I'm all in favor of it I just think it's very odd that you've had How many storylines and angles over the last couple of months have you had? Going back to AJ Styles, when AJ went on TV and cut those work shoot promos and basically said TNA sucks, this company sucks, it's not a fun place to work, Dixie Carter's an idiot. I mean, that's basically what he said. Now MVP makes his debut and he admits the same thing. He says, listen, TNA has been stuck in this rut for so long because it's been mismanaged and now I'm here and things are going to be different. So this, this insinuation that up to this point... TNA is run by a moron And TNA has sucked I think that's a little bit Suspect to make that your main Storyline but this is what they're doing uh, Rockstar Spud comes out He says that uh, Miss Dixie, what does he call her? Madam Dixie, whatever Wants to meet with him, he agrees to the meeting First though he makes a Kurt Angle-Magnus match for later In the show uh, By the way, MVP is not under contract At TNA, not yet He is working on a handshake deal with the promotion. He told uh, the American Magazine, he did an interview with them, and he said, I still don't have a signed contract. Our lawyers are working out the last little bit of the deal, so I am here on a handshake. And I'm sure they're going to work it out. I'm sure everything's going to be fine. But I don't know. I mean, to put the guy on TV knowing that he was not signed to a contract and you're making this guy the centerpiece of this big storyline that's going to carry you for the rest of the year... You know, look, if if WWE actually saw TNA as a threat, it would be very easy for them to make a very generous offer to MVP. And if it was all about the money, he could take it. And could you imagine MVP, this big investor on TNA television, shows up on Raw one week? You know, it's like AJ Styles. AJ Styles was on TNA television the first two weeks of this year, and he had that big blow off match with Magnus. But he had not been under TNA contract for several weeks. It would have been very easy for WWE to snatch him up if they really wanted him, put him on TV. Now, if you're TNA, you've got two weeks left of television with this guy. You can't edit this guy out of the show. How embarrassing. So I think it speaks more to how WWE views TNA these days than anything else. I just think it's very, you know, it's very risky to do something like that. And, you know, what if the lawyers are trying to work out the last little bit of the deal and... There's something in there that TNA doesn't like, and they don't want to do this, so they don't want to give him that, and then it all falls apart. Could be a lot of egg on their face if that happens. Bully Ray killed Curry Man, put him in a casket. This was all to hype up his casket match on Impact this Thursday with Ken Anderson. Before all of this, Bully also quoted Coolio from the song Gangsta's Paradise. He did a promo, and... There's Bully Ray on television saying, you know, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. I hope that next week he does Fantastic Voyage. That's what I'm hoping for. It's like slide, slide, slippity slide with switches on the block in a 65. Come on. It's Coolio. The guy's got the word cool in his name, for crying out loud. Big reaction for Austin Aries when he came out. The man who introduced option C, he pointed out to us. And he plans to once again cash in his X title for a shot at the world title. He flat out said, I'm going to do it. Uh, the Bromans come out for the distraction. DJ Zima attacks Ares from behind. cashes in his briefcase for a shot at the X division title. So we have an impromptu match. A uh, money in the bank match here on Impact. Short match too, maybe two, two and a half minutes. Ares wins with the brain buster. Not really much to it. Christy Hemi confronted Sam Shaw backstage. She gave him the, I think you're a great guy speech, which is almost as bad as the, it's not you, it's me speech. She says they have to keep things professional, and she walks off. And he gave a look into the camera that would lead you to believe that next week we are going to see pieces of Christy Hemi mailed to TNA headquarters in Nashville. So if I were her, I would get Atlas Security to accompany me to and from my car every time I go to a new city. At least they addressed her not being aware that the guy is a psychotic freak. You know, it did make sense. You know, I give them points for that. Elsewhere, Magnus and Rude have a conversation backstage where Bobby Rude reminds Magnus that you tapped out to Samoa Joe the week before. Magnus then pointed out that it was a non-title match and then said the dumbest fucking thing. Not that it doesn't make sense that a heel champion would do this since his title isn't on the line. But mind you, they were promoting a main event of Kurt Angle versus Magnus on this show. And Magnus just goes, Oh, I'll, I'll happily tap out in a non-title match just to keep my title. <laughs> Way to kill the drama of the next match. Way to go. Why, why would you say something like that right before going out there to wrestle Kurt Angle? Just, just the timing of it was so stupid. Dixie's big meeting with MVP came up next, backstage. She says, I have built this company from the ground up 12 years ago, and I've turned it into a global entertainment empire. Yes. Remember what I said. Her character is supposed to be delusional. Delusional Dixie. That's my new name for her. That's her gimmick. Unfortunately, it hits a little too close to home. She said MVP would get a great rub From working with her, which was funny. MVP played the whole thing up like he didn't believe a word this woman was saying, but played along anyway. When MVP left, Rockstar Spud told Delusional Dixie that he seemed like a pretty good bloke, which didn't make her very happy. This was all building to a segment in the ring with them at the end of the show. That main event segment, by the way, with MVP and Dixie, second lowest rated on the entire show. Just wanted to point that out. Kurt Angle beat Magnus in another two-minute match by DQ after EC3 interfered when Angle had Magnus in the ankle lock. I don't really have much to say about these matches because they're all two, three minutes long. It's like the length of a Divas match. When I do my Raw review, I don't spend a lot of time on the Divas unless this week, you know, one Diva drives her knee down into somebody's eye socket and that kind of becomes a story. But just a little fyi there's not much to say about these matches this is like uh you know the russo era of tna where it was all storylines and skits and angles and bullshit and the actual matches were not very long at all so angle and magnus you'd think that would be a big time match even though it was non-title uh not really went all of two minutes here ec3 went after kurt's injured knee this is where they did the injury angle with him since kurt needs surgery Uh, He used a chair on the knee. I've talked about this with NXT, how Bo Dallas has this cheesy comedic side to his character, but these past couple of weeks, we've seen a more serious side of of Bo Dallas that is kind of what we saw here with EC3. You know, he's the guy who beats up Scrubs and runs away from everybody else. He's a joke. But here, he showed his his sinister side. Uh, And I liked it. Backstage, Samoa Joe checked on Angle, who had to be stretchered out, and then Joe... Spotted the camera, the uh, the TMZ camera trying to get up in his face. And he cut a hell of a promo here on Dixie Carter. Joe was just awesome here. Uh, I said on Twitter, why can't we have that kind of fire from John Cena when somebody beats up his father? That's the kind of promo I want to see from that guy when you beat up his family. Joe doesn't even have any family. He, you know, Kurt and him are, are tight. They're buds. They're, they're friends. And Joe, I mean, you would think that somebody... Pissed in his cornflakes, smacked his mother around, kicked his dog. Like this guy just exploded on Dixie Carter in this promo. It was great, loved it. Chris Sabin, Velvet Sky. They did the uh, a hoax angle here where Sabin was in a room backstage. I guess this room was where they first kissed many years ago, and he was gonna, you know, do something special. He wanted to bring Velvet back, you know, into the room because remember the week before Velvet dumped him. And clearly not willing to take no for an answer. So he invited her into the room, and he teased, proposing marriage to her. But when she opened up the box that he handed her, it was empty. And he said, the empty box represents the fact that I want you out of my life. I want my life empty, without you. And then he challenged her to a match next week, and Velvet just started crying. So now he's the modern-day version of Andy Kaufman, I guess. The real main event of the show was Samoa Joe versus Bobby Roode. At least this went longer than two minutes. I'd say it went at least five or six. Uh, these are probably my two favorite guys in TNA right now. Good match. Surprisingly, Joe got the clean win with the muscle buster into the coquina clutch for the tap out. I say surprisingly. I know Joe was the number one contender. Uh, but, I don't know. To beat Bobby Roode clean, I guess I was expecting some kind of, uh, you know, the, the endless parade of interference that we've gotten over the last few weeks on Impact. And surprisingly, refreshingly, we did not get that here. Clean win for Joe. Builds him up for lockdown. Final segment saw delusional Dixie and MVP in the ring together. Not since the Savage Crush Summit on Raw have we had a a, a meeting as epic as this one in magnitude. She said, if everybody just continues to follow my lead, we will continue to be successful. That's what Dixie said. She sets the bar quite low when it comes to defining success. Then MVP turned on her, said she didn't know a wrist lock from a padlock. He didn't come here to be a butler at a Paula Deen party. He's got a way with words, that MVP. I will give him that. He said her reign of terror was
3: That's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Over, and things were going to change. So the stage has been set for the babyface investor versus heel owner storyline that supposedly is going to carry TNA into the fall. We'll see how it goes. MVP, you know, MVP plays the part very well. It's only been a week, so I can't really judge it. Like when Dixie turned heel, I was willing to give it time. I said, we can't judge her just on one week or two weeks. It wasn't until we hit like week six that I crapped all over it because Heel Dixie sucks. She'll have her moments here and there, like in certain backstage segments, but live in front of the crowd, the number of segments that we see her in. It was better this week. I think we had like four segments with her in it this week as opposed to eight the week before uh, or the week before that, whenever it was. So I like to give these things a little bit of time. We'll see how things pan out for MVP, but he does play the role very well so far. Uh, I'm, I'm just—I'm tired of all these authority figure angles in wrestling. I really am, and that goes for WWE too. I'm just so sick of it. But if this one leads to Dixie being booted off TV, I'm all for it. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the end goal here. Case in point, the Jeff Jarrett Toby Keith story. That's the next big story I want to talk about here. We got some more details about this. This week. This comes from the the Wrestling Observer newsletter. Uh, Meltzer was one of those guys from the beginning who said, you know, no matter what Janice Carter may say in these memos that she circulates, all the denials, and, and maybe they don't have a sign on their front door saying, hey, come on in for an open house. You know, we're up for sale. Basically, he said from the get go that TNA was for sale. They were entertaining offers. And the deal that had been proposed would have had Jeff Jarrett and Toby Keith buying TNA and the reason that it didn't happen was reportedly one request that Bob Carter had Bob Carter is Dixie's dad he's the one bankrolling this whole operation if Bob Carter wakes up one day from his beauty sleep down in in Tennessee or wherever they are Texas wherever and says you know what I'm tired of losing money I'm done I'm pulling the plug on this whole thing if he does that TNA is dead TNA ceases to exist they're finished so he's kind of a TNA sugar daddy here, if you want to look at it that way. And I know his wife, Janice, handles the finances. Dixie had that power taken away from her a long time ago. Supposedly, as the story goes, Bob Carter had one demand, that being that his daughter be kept on as a character on television and have you know some degree of power. I don't know what position she would have held if it would have been more ceremonial than anything else. It sounds like basically he wanted his you know his daughter to save face. He didn't want to just throw her under the bus and just confirm what everybody already knows, which is that she's an idiot, she's not a good business person, she doesn't know what she's doing. She's not a wrestling personality. She's in over her head all of these things. Again, delusional Dixie. And Toby Keith looked at that and said, you know, look, I'm I'm not looking for any sort of creative limitations here or uh, you know, demands to be made on your end. Like you're either selling or you're not. And if you're not, then we're walking away and that's where we are now with jeff and and toby keith i guess looking to bankroll this new wrestling promotion that is still a ways off from launching Jarrett posted a teaser on his was either twitter or instagram i think earlier in the week it was like a 15 second video something like you know coming soon or we're coming or it's coming or something like that so clearly there's a new promotion that they're involved with that they're starting from scratch uh, and it's going to take a while to get it off the ground, and they've got to scour for talent, and they've got to look for TV, uh, because in today's day and age, without TV, you're not going to you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah, you know, that's just a fact of life, and that's where it gets really interesting when it comes to Spike TV, because TNA's deal with Spike is up in October. So you would think that right now they're either negotiating or they're getting ready to negotiate a new deal. I would think that Spike is happy enough with TNA. TNA even though they can't seem to get past a certain point, the ratings that TNA does is still better than almost everything else except maybe Cops. I, I guess the Cops reruns do really well, but TNA's got to be way up there in terms of what those shows do on that network. So I, I I feel like in the end, Spike and TNA will reach a deal for at least one year. They're going to they're gonna keep things going, but you never know. And if they don't reach a deal soon enough and Jarrett and Toby Keith kind of swoop in there and say, listen, you know, this is what we have. This is what we're proposing and let's talk, you know, let's talk Turkey. And wouldn't it be something if TNA gets booted off Spike TV and this fall there's a brand new promotion debuting on Spike? Maybe they even want to give Spike a, you know, part ownership in it just to sweeten the pot. Just saying, anything can happen. And that's what makes these these negotiations so interesting. It's like the negotiations with WWE and NBC Universal. You know, Valentine's Day is coming up pretty quick, this Friday. That's the last date that NBC has to reach some sort of deal with WWE or to reach the demand, whatever WWE is asking for. If they don't do that, WWE is free to go out and negotiate with other networks. Maybe Spike. How does Spike and WWE factor into this whole thing? All of these these TV negotiations are going to help shape wrestling for the rest of this year and beyond. It's not just another business deal. This This is... Make or break stuff for a company like TNA, because without TV, they can't survive. And they have no value. At least while they have television, TNA has some value. So it's going to be very interesting to follow this story going forward. And they got some bad ratings news TNA did this week. Impact actually did pretty good, but bad ratings news in that the NFL, uh, I think the NFL and and, uh, CBS are going to be airing eight Thursday night football games this fall. So there's going to be a lot more football on television than in the past, and that's not good news for TNA. And I joked with somebody on Twitter, I said, I guess we're going to get Wednesday Night Impact. I don't know, maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for them to bounce Impact into a different time slot or a different day because, uh, you know, football does take a chunk out of wrestling. You know, Monday Night Football takes a chunk out of Raw. Uh, Not a catastrophic amount, but it does hurt them. TNA's numbers are not where WWE's numbers are, so for them to take a big hit by the NFL, I don't know that they can really afford to sustain that. So that'll be something also to follow if if they get moved around and shuffled around into a different time slot this fall. Assuming, of course, that they stay on Spike in the first place. Time for the mailbag. If you have questions to send to me, please email them, thesalamonster at gmail.com. You can send mp3 questions as well as an attachment Always include your question, though, in the body of the email, and please include your name and where you're from. This comes from Peter. Given CM Punk's diva-like behavior, do you think he should be installed as the number one contender for his girlfriend's title to give him the championship match of Mania he so craves? Ouch! That was so great, I had to put that in the mailbag, so Peter, good job. Sam from Windsor, Ontario, Canada, with all the talk of CM Punk quitting WWE and him saying how this year should be Daniel Bryan's year on top, do you think that this year's Mania main event should be Punk versus Bryan for the title? Obviously Bryan would go over, but my main point of this match would be to check off that one final thing Punk wants to do in his career while at the same time putting over Bryan in a big way. I am aware of there being a snowball's chance in hell of this happening, but just wanted to get your thoughts. Hey, you know the two most over guys in the company wrestling for the the top prize? Absolutely, I'd pay to see that. I love their matches they had back in twenty twelve. Their their over the limit match was one of my favorite matches that whole year. It's great stuff. And Punk versus Brian, especially now, you know, Punk's gone and he's been the talk of the town. Brian's a lot more over now than he was two years ago. Maybe back then, I couldn't buy that as a real WrestleMania main event. Today, I'd have no problem buying that as a WrestleMania main event. They're the two most popular guys in the company. I think that'd be big money. Prince says, I'd love to see WWE take a page from WrestleMania 10 and have Daniel Bryan face Triple H, and if he defeats him, then face the winner of the Batista vs. Randy Orton match. That way, we might have a Batista and Bryan match in the main event. And the crowd goes home happy. I like that better than the three-way idea being proposed. What do you think? Well, the crowd only goes home happy if Brian wins. If the idea is that Batista wins the championship or wins it and holds on to it, that's not going to be a very happy crowd, I'm willing to bet, especially not with all the, uh, the international fans coming in. I, you know what, I don't mind that idea at all, but I would do it a little bit differently. I would actually borrow a page from WrestleMania 10 in that I would have Orton retain the title against Batista. You know, you could do some sort of screw job, maybe, that sets up Batista's post-WrestleMania program with whoever that's going to be with. Uh, however Orton does it, obviously it wouldn't be clean. But everybody's thinking, okay, Batista versus Brian, and you swerve them and you have Orton retain. Brian wins against Triple H. And I know we've seen Brian versus Orton a million times. We saw Brian versus Orton for 27 minutes on Raw last Monday night. But I think in that case with Orton being, you know, the face of the company, and he's been their, you know, chosen champion now for months, it would be quite appropriate. Here we are in the WrestleMania main event. It boils right back down to Brian versus Orton, and the deck is stacked. He got the big win over Triple H, but he already wrestled a full match. Can he do it? Can he pull it off? And then he gets the big win, finally, over Orton for the championship and has the big celebration. You could even have Batista come out and do some sort of stare down, or, you know, however you want to do it, but... That's that's how I would tweak it. I would I would do that. I would have the two matches, but have Orton go over Batista, and then you end with Brian versus Orton. So you can save the first Brian Batista match for another pay per view. You can save it maybe for Extreme Rules the next month, or do the triple threat match then. I'd hate to blow off the first Brian Batista match with really no build at a WrestleMania because I think that could you can get two or three pay-per-view made events out of that, I think, later in the year. Marlon writes in, regarding the Shields' rumored triple threat match at WrestleMania 30, the stage is already set for Roman Reigns and Dean Ambrose, so if WWE did go down this road, I feel Seth Rollins should win as a way to jumpstart his singles career. What do you think? I agree. They've already got big plans for Roman Reigns, and and Dean Ambrose is going to be just fine. Rollins is the one guy of that group that I'd worry about. Uh, He would need that win, I think, more than the other two would. I'd give it to Rollins, just like you would. You could do a deal where Reigns has him beat, Ambrose breaks it up, since the real heat is between the two of them. And I don't think Rollins is going single anytime soon. My guess is they keep him and Ambrose together after WrestleMania. There's talk maybe of adding a third member to the Shield to replace Roman Reigns. I've heard Mason Ryan, which I can't see. I just just think that that would be a, a big mistake. If they do that I know I wasn't sold on Roman Reigns either When they first debuted The Shield But he proved me wrong He got real good real fast And the guy's got a star presence about him Mason Ryan has no star presence about him He's been in developmental for years I watch him I just watched him on, on NXT this past week He seems no better And no worse than he was three years ago You know, All he had was a huge body And now he doesn't even have that Cole from Philadelphia. I know that back in the late 80s, early 90s, pinfalls and submissions were added to the cage match because most of the wrestlers back then were bigger and less athletic than they are now. But to me, those additions slowly but surely made the cage match seem less dramatic and somewhat pointless. So does that mean that the cage match is basically dead? Here's the thing about cage matches. Traditionally, back, back in, like, go back into the 70s, okay? Pinfall and submission were how cage matches largely were decided. The escape the cage rule, I think, really, I don't want to say that there was never a cage match with the escape the cage rule, because I don't, I don't think that's true, but that was mainly a WWE thing. WWE, you know, either invented that aspect of it, or they popularized it, whatever word you want to use. That was a WWE gimmick. That's what I grew up on, watching wrestling in the 80s, so to me, if I saw a cage match that was pinfall or submission rules, I hated it because a cage match is where you climb out to escape. That's what I grew up on. You know That's not really what a cage match, though is supposed to be. Cage matches meant, or, or was meant, maybe I should say, to either blow off a blood feud between two guys, right or two teams, or you have a cage to prevent outside interference. You could use the cage as a weapon. You could bust people open. Most cage matches back then had some blood. And you otherwise fought it like a normal match just to see who the better man was by pinfall or submission. I still like the escape the cage rules and I like the drama that you can build around that to see who's going to touch the floor first if, let's say, one guy's going for the door and the other one's climbing out on the opposite side. But if you think about it, it's kind of a, a, a pussy way to determine a winner, isn't it? Especially if there's a championship on the line. I mean, it's like... Hey, let's determine who the real world champion is of our promotion by seeing who can climb out the door and touch the floor first. Like it's like it's a foot race. It's kind of dumb when you really think about it. It's not really what a cage match is supposed to be. Hell in a Cell is more in line with what a cage match is supposed to be. You lock two dudes in a cage and they kill each other until one man is left standing. The problem with cage matches these days, first of all, no blood. Now, you could do a cage match with no blood. Brett Noen had a great one at SummerSlam in 94. But it's hard for me to really get into a cage match these days because for so many years, we saw blood. You know, you ram a guy's face into the steel, he bleeds. Makes sense. Go watch that Hell in a Cell match with Brock Lesnar and The Undertaker. Undertaker doesn't even look like a white person when the match is over. He looks like fucking Hellboy, he's so red. There's a lot of drama there. Without it, I think cage matches, Hell in a Cell matches... They all lose something. You know, and then there's the issue of how often we see cage matches these days. Every other week, there's a steel cage match. And a lot of the time, they're not even necessary. You know, like the, the Rhodes Brothers against the Outlaws last week. It made sense. Brock Lesnar interfered in their match the week before. He laid him out. So the rematch is in a cage to prevent any outside interference. Fine. Great. But you'll have cage matches for no good reason. Cage matches as, as the first match of a feud. And then it's like... Why? Why not save it for when the time is right? So, to answer your question, is the cage match dead? Yeah, pretty much. They don't mean what they used to. You know, war games used to be the end-all, be-all. It was a fucking war. That's why they called it war games. Hell in a Cell used to mean something on pay-per-view. Now, who the hell cares? (laughs) Look at Daniel Bryan and Randy Orton, their Cell match from last October. Did that really have to be inside the Cell? What happened in that match that, that... necessitated it being inside the cell. Other than, oh shit, it's October. We have to have a hell in a cell match. It's that time of year. Bring down the cell. It means nothing. It's a joke. Daniel from Toronto, I just read that the Sinkara character is currently in the top five merchandise sellers in WWE. My question now is, now that Hunico is playing the character, do you think he is getting a cut of these sales? Also Do you think the original Sin Cara is still getting a cut? The article I read listed John Cena being the top seller, followed by Punk, Daniel Bryan, Ultimate Warrior, and Sin Cara. Interesting top five. What are your thoughts? Uh, That is a really good question on the Sin Cara stuff, I would think think Huniko gets a piece of that now but I don't know I don't know I don't know about Mystico the the original guy he claims to own the Sin Cara name and likeness I would think that if WWE didn't own it they wouldn't still be using it so I don't know I don't have a good answer for you the list you mentioned actually had Cena number one uh, Punk number two and Bryan number four not number three I don't know who number three is I would guess Mysterio uh, warrior and Sin Cara, as you mentioned, are are doing very well. Warrior doesn't surprise me at all, because the character is insanely marketable. You know, the color, like the Ultimate Warrior character, to me, if I were running a wrestling promotion, I would be in love with that character. Just in terms of selling merchandise, selling T-shirts and tassels and all that, all that stuff. You know, the the makeup, the masks, whatever. You could do so many things with that gimmick. It's so colorful. Literally, it's it's just a colorful character Uh, so I'm I'm not surprised at all and plus you know he was a big star and so there's a lot of nostalgia it's like if they brought Hogan back which they are I'm sure they'll sell a ton of Hulkamania stuff and that's part of it you know the nostalgia thing Uh, a guy like Daniel Bryan have you seen some of the stuff up on his page on WWE shop I'm bringing it up right now because I want to go through some of the stuff that's on here because some of the items that they have on this guy's page he's one of the top guys in the company okay he's not a mid-card act anymore He's not a comedy act like he used to be with Team Hell No, and they used to call him Goat Boy and Goat Face and all this other stuff. Okay, He's supposed to be a, a top like main event level guy in WWE, especially now with Punk Gun, that kind of bumped him up a spot. You look at some of the items and the shirts and stuff that they have on this page, I mean, it's horrendous. I mean, who in their right mind would be caught dead wearing some of this shit? Let me see here. Hold on a second. There, there's a shirt. Okay, here, here it is. There's a new shirt that they have for Daniel Bryan. I think it's new. I don't even know. I would hope it's new so that they come to their senses and take it down. Hopefully this hasn't been up there forever. It's the Daniel Bryan Flying Goat t-shirt. They call it a special edition shirt. I'd love to know what's so special about this shirt. It's a picture of a goat with a long beard. I'm looking at the at the thumbnail for this shirt. I didn't even know at first that it's a, it's a long beard. Coming from it looks like it's vomiting or something or shitting out of its neck. I don't know what's going on in this picture here, but it's a picture of a of a a goat with a long beard and it's got wings. And then on the back it says yes yes yes. Again, I ask you, who would be caught dead in public wearing a shirt like this? Okay, you go down a little bit more. I mean, the yes 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 uh, bib for your baby. Okay, that's fine. Then they have a hat. I got to talk about this. Okay, they have a hat. The hat itself is actually nice. It looks like a nice hat, right? It says Daniel Bryan. It's got his logo with the white lettering and the red outline on the front. On the side, it says, yes, yes, yes. Hey, nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with this is it's a beard baseball hat. The entire brim of the hat, I don't know if it's removable, if you could just rip that shit off and wear it as a regular hat. I don't think you can. The whole brim is a hairy beard. It's supposed to look like a hairy beard, 20 bucks for this. Who the fuck would wear this? <laughs> I ask you, please, somebody. if Who would wear that hat? A hairy hat. Who even comes up with the idea for something like this? And I, I'm going down the page here and, I, I mean, the closest thing to a respectable t-shirt is uh, the main one I think that he wears. It's a picture of, like, an illustration of him and the beard and everything. And over his eyes it says, fear the beard. That's fine. You know, I, I have no problem with that. But, oh my god, you, I mean, you have to look at this hat. The, the flying goat shirt and the hat are just absolutely atrocious. And this is what this guy has up on his merchandise. And I assume they sell this at the live events. Who would wear this shit? I mean, one of our listeners, Lance, has his own wrestling t-shirt store online. Okay, He's on Twitter, at Lance Tees. Okay? T-E-E-S. I'm giving him a free plug here. He's got a Yes Movement shirt. For Brian, That's actually pretty sweet. It's got the fingers up in the air. I mean, the font on the shirt, the colors. It's something I would not be embarrassed to wear outdoors. It's something I would not be embarrassed to wear in front of a woman. Is it really that hard to come up with something decent for this guy? Adam. Adam is another one of our listeners. He said, why not have a shirt that reads goat mode? Like, in initials, G-O-A-T mode. Hashtag greatest of all time. As a play off the Seahawks... And their whole beast mode thing. They should be working on that right now. And and, you know, part of the blame has to lie with Daniel Bryan too. Okay, he doesn't get off easy here. There are a lot of wrestlers who come up with stuff on their own. Their own t-shirt ideas and t-shirt concepts. You know, look at a guy like Steve Austin. He wasn't happy with the stuff they were coming up with for him. And so he came up with some ideas of his own. With skulls. He loves skulls. Everybody loves skulls. I love skulls. And it took off. Now, I don't know if maybe Brian is coming up with ideas and they keep rejecting them. Maybe Brian's coming up with ideas and they suck. (laughs) You know, he's a great wrestler. That doesn't mean he's got a great creative mind. So, is he coming up with ideas and they're getting rejected? Is he not bothering? I don't know. But for fuck's sake, remember when they had him walking around wearing that rape shirt? That's what I used to call it. It was the Daniel Bryan rape shirt. It was a shirt that said, no, 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 on the front... And on the back, it said, stop it. (laughs) What the hell else am I supposed to think? What would a a, a layman walking down the street who knows nothing about wrestling, who looks at me wearing a shirt that says, no, 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 and stop it, on the back, what's the first fucking thing that's going to come into their mind? They're going to be completely creeped out by me. They may even call the cops on me. (laughs) Thankfully, that shirt didn't last long. I don't see it here on the page. I don't think they sell it anymore. But, jeez, I mean, somebody get this guy some new gear. I'm actually impressed he made it as high as number four on the list with the stuff they actually do have for him. Glenn Warnicky asks, Why do you think WWE did the two-hour tribute show for Eddie Guerrero with an arena full of fans and matches and did a three-hour tribute show for Chris Benoit with an empty arena and filled with highlights? Both men died on the Sunday before Raw, and I just don't know why they did two different types of shows for someone's death. Can you please explain this to me? When Benoit died, first of all, they didn't find out until Monday afternoon, so it was... Not exactly last minute, but it was pretty close to last minute. Second of all, Raw was one of those special three-hour shows that night. I don't know if you remember. This was right after the angle where they blew Vince McMahon up in the limo. And the theme of the show was Mr. McMahon's funeral. And they had the entire arena done up with black wreaths and all these things to make it look like a funeral. Well, obviously, three people, including a seven-year-old kid, really did die. And it would have been in poor taste for them to bring people into the arena with it looking all black and looking like a funeral. So that's why they didn't bring anybody into the building. And that's why it turned into a three-hour clip show. This comes from Cody, first-time emailer. When the WWE Network launches, you foresee it having a significant impact on physical releases like DVD, Blu-ray, and other special edition sets uh, being released by the company in the future. Will the all-in-one subscription service render that market completely obsolete? or will it still manage to thrive and receive as much attention as it did in the past? Also, how big of a collector are you, and would you feel negatively about a discontinuation of their physical media? I just found the Royal Rumble Anthology for an extremely low price at a thrift store, and digital streaming just cannot replicate its aesthetic beauty. I I think over time it is going to have an effect on DVDs. I don't think it'll happen right away. You know, the network launches on the 24th and they've got a, a new Shawn Michaels DVD coming out. They have a new Ultimate Warrior DVD coming out right around WrestleMania time. I think initially it'll be fine, but yeah, I mean, if this network really does take off and they can rack up, you know, a million subscribers or more over time. I don't know what the incentive would be for people to run right out and spend thirty, forty dollars on a on a DVD, or spend fifty bucks on a box set, you know, or something like that. Uh, I'm not like a big collector. I used to buy a lot of those DVD documentaries, so I have like the Monday Night War, Jake the Snake, Pick Your Poison, both Ric Flair anthologies. I don't have any box sets for any of the events because I already had them on VHS, and now they're now they're useless. But um, I I wouldn't call myself a big collector. I just don't have room. I physically do not have the room to buy these DVD sets anymore, so I just don't buy them. Uh, If I could get them digitally or or by other means, if they pop up on YouTube or something, I'll check them out. Uh, But I just simply do not have the room, so uh, I'm sure the the box art looks really nice. But me personally, I just don't have any place for it, so I don't really mind as much. What's going to be interesting is when the network launches, they said that I don't know if they said all of their home video releases will be up on there, but they gave the impression that all of them or most of them would be. As an old school fan, I would love to know if that includes the old Coliseum video releases. Uh, I guess based on things that I've read, there are people internally in WWE who are already testing out the network and they're raving about it. They said it's the coolest thing ever. Uh, there's a lot of, there's, you know, a ton of stuff up there. And there are a lot of the uh, home videos from recent years, I guess, that are up there, but they did not see any of the Coliseum home videos. So I guess that doesn't confirm anything. It doesn't mean that it can't go up at some point. Again, it's in beta test mode internally right now. But that kind of makes me sad because my guess is that they will not be part of that initial launch. Maybe over time they will. Uh, that That's what I would have a real interest in. Uh, but then again, I also know that if you if you know how to search around on YouTube, you will find a ton of those old Coliseum video releases in full on YouTube. Just FYI for anybody who wants to go uh, go give that a shot. Hoovy one two three from Twitter. First discovered you on YouTube via TV tracks about 15 months ago. Decided to add your podcast to my rotation and have not looked back. My question regards Sting's place in Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Considering Meltzer's requirements for his Hall of Fame, is Sting a Hall of Famer? Some on Twitter say no because he wasn't a huge draw and was not a great in-ring wrestler. I think a Hall of Fame without Sting simply makes no sense. What are your thoughts? The uh, the The Hall of Fame for the Observer... You know, it's, it's a funny thing um, that probably is the most legitimate wrestling Hall of Fame that's out there and like the WWE one there is no physical building um, there is no there is no physical house for it it's just kind of out there in the ether it's down on paper more than anything else uh, but believe me it's a hell of a lot more legitimate than Vince McMahon's Hall of Fame ever will be uh, the reason being I mean first of all to give some background on it because I am aware of it, And it is a big deal, you know, when they announce new Hall of Famers. And Meltzer does these long bios. I mean, he is a student of wrestling history, so it's fun to go back and and really read the backgrounds on some of the older guys when they get inducted. Maybe guys that were already well beyond their prime when I first got into wrestling, and so I didn't know too much about them. Uh, The thing about the Observer Hall of Fame is it it got started in the mid-90s. I don't remember exactly what year, but it was somewhere in the mid-90s. And the inductees are voted in by their peers. So fellow wrestlers from the past, wrestlers from today, bookers, uh, wrestling writers, journalists, whatever you want to call them. Uh, This is not the fans voting. This is not the fans in the app, you know, casting their vote, uh, stuffing the ballot box for their favorite wrestler. You know, this is not Vince McMahon deciding who he's on good terms with this year. And it has certain rules, too. So, for example, you need to be a certain age. You need to have a certain number of years in wrestling before you're even eligible to be voted on. You need—I think it's 60 or 65 percent of the vote to be inducted. Um, a lot of guys who probably deserve to be in come real close, but then they fall short of that number. And then, especially if they're an older name, you know that's tough because let's say let's say the number is 60, and let's say a guy from wrestling in the you know the 40s 50s and 60s who was a big name and a big draw but doesn't have a lot of name recognition these days but he gets his percentage up to like 58 but falls short that's not good for him because as time goes on you know the memory of this guy becomes more distant a lot of the older wrestling fans you know or older wrestlers i should say die off maybe um it's it's very much like the baseball hall of fame there's a lot of guys you can say should be in the baseball hall of fame who aren't who come real close, I think in baseball it's like 75%, and maybe they get 68% or 70 or whatever, and they get really close, but then the next year it's a little bit less and a little bit less, and you know at that point there's no way that guy's ever going to get inducted. Meltzer's Hall of Fame, the Observer Hall of Fame, kind of works the same way. Whatever that magic number is, you need to hit that number, and if you don't, you don't get in. It really is the closest thing to a legitimate wrestling Hall of Fame that there is. Now with Sting, you would think... He'd be a shoo-in, right? Big star. But I guess the mindset is, was Sting a big draw? You know, was he this great, outstanding performer in the ring? You know, what makes him a Hall of Famer besides the fact that he's Sting? I mean, come on, man, he's Sting. Okay, that's great, but what makes him a Hall of Famer? And really, when you compare him to some of the real big draws in wrestling history of that era, like Flair, Dusty, Hogan, you know, even Savage... The fact is, Sting was below all of those guys. He may have been one of the biggest stars WCW ever had, but that doesn't mean he was a real draw. He was never looked at as a guy who, okay, we can build around him, and we're going to get sellouts, and we're going to sell pay-per-views, and it's, he's going to really make us a lot of money. I mean, Sting made money, but he didn't make money like those guys did. He didn't make money like a true top like main event guy. The angle they did with him and Hogan in 97... Yes, Sting, Sting was a draw. The Hogan vs. Sting main event did the biggest buy rate in Starcade history. They never hit a bigger number than they did for that Starcade pay-per-view in 97. Well, okay, that's one show. What else did he do? Point me to another two, three, four, five shows that he, he really helped draw a big number for. Has Sting been a draw for TNA? Maybe a little bit when he first came in. I don't know. I mean, back then, were they still doing the weekly pay-per-views back then? I don't remember. I think Sting first came in in 03. He left. He came back again in 06. And by then, they were doing monthly pay-per-views. But it's not like he turned business around for TNA. TNA brought in Sting, and it didn't really mean much. Just like they brought in Hogan and Flair. And, and Kurt Angle did mean a little bit at first, and then a little bit less, and a little bit less. And now he's just another guy. But even in TNA, you can't really say that he did anything for their business that's Hall of Fame worthy. I mean, realistically, nobody in TNA meant that much to business where it's like, wow, okay, this guy's a Hall of Famer. So his TNA run, it was nice. It added years onto his career. It kept him in the spotlight. He won some world titles. But Hall of Fame-wise, it means shit. It doesn't mean anything. So I think that's the mindset. That's why you know Meltzer doesn't look at him as a Hall of Famer. It doesn't matter what whether he does or not. I know he's been on record as saying that. Ultimately, it's not his vote. If Sting got voted in next year, he wouldn't care. Because if Sting gets voted in, it's because you know his fellow wrestlers thought he deserved to be voted in. Sting has not been voted into the Hall of Fame. He may never be. So I know there are fans out there, even myself, who look at that and go, "Oh, it's kind of weird because we always looked at Sting as being this big star." And he was, but there's a difference between being a big star and being a Hall of Famer. And with Sting, he kind of falls somewhere in the middle. You could go either way.
2: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Whether or not he is or he isn't. History has here. This week in wrestling history. This is a good one this week. We got a lot of really uh, important dates in history to go through. And first we go all the way back 64 years ago. February 7th, 1950. You may have heard the name Leroy McGurk before. Jim Ross speaks of him as JR drove McGurk around a lot and was almost like an errand boy for him back in the late 70s when he was promoting. Before that, though, McGurk was a world champion wrestler. He held the National Wrestling Association's junior heavyweight title from 1939 to 1950, over 10 years straight, which would make him the longest reigning male singles champion of all time. Uh, That all came to an end on this date. He was riding as a passenger in a car, being driven by one of his trainees, when the guy slammed on the brakes to avoid hitting a car. Next to him, McGurk went right into the windshield, smashed his glasses, pieces of which went into his good eye, which caused him to go blind. He was already blind in the other eye after a swimming accident as a kid. One of my favorite wrestling stories is the Leroy McGurk story that JR tells. And I imagine he'll probably talk about this when I go see his one-man show next month in New York. So Leroy has a daughter named Michelle. And I guess he really wanted a boy very badly, so he just referred to her as Mike. And yes, she was Mike McGurk, who did some ring announcing for WWE in the early 90s. And Bobby Heenan would always make fun of her. Anyway, as Jr. tells the story, Leroy flipped his lid when he heard that Mike had supposedly had sex with Ted DiBiase. So the next morning, after I'm sure a lot of uh, drinking and and whatnot, uh, and with a handgun in his possession, he has Jim Ross drive him from Tulsa to Shreveport. And Jr. realizes along the way, oh shit, you know my boss is going to kill DiBiase. And if he does, that makes me an accessory to murder. And I think Leroy's pants got set on fire or something from, uh, like, ashes from his cigar. I forgot the rest of the story. Something happened and they pulled over on the side of the road and thankfully he never went through with it. Uh, He sounds like a real interesting character, Leroy McGurk does. You had a lot of those in wrestling back in the day. You do today. You know, you you have some interesting characters in, in wrestling today that you hear about new jack for example is one of those kind of modern era guys that seems like quite the character i would imagine 20 30 years from now when wwe guys from today are telling old road stories they're going to be a hell of a lot more boring than the stories from the 70s and the 80s so that's kind of a shame 40 years ago this week on february 4 1974 professional wrestling comes to the nassau coliseum for the very first time It was a uh, WWF show featuring a double main event of Bruno San Martino defending his title against former champion Stan Stasiak and the team of Tony Gurria and Dean Ho against Mr. Fuji and Otto Von Heller. Larry the Axe Heddy, Gorilla Monsoon, Nikolai Volkov, and Jose Gonzalez all appeared on the card. Gonzalez being the future invader number one who would go on to murder Bruiser Brody in a shower stall 14 years later. I've been to many shows at the Nassau Coliseum over the years here in New York, going back to when I was a kid, lots of big pay-per-views held there, part of the second WrestleMania uh, Summer Slam back in 02, which had Shawn Michaels' big comeback against Triple H. But it's also the same arena that Paul Heyman once said had some of the worst wrestling fans in the world. This was uh, this was when he was an announcer on Raw, so this would have been 2001. And he said this during one of the commercial breaks, I was there that night. And in fairness, the crowd's there at the Coliseum, do tend to suck. I don't know why. Uh, It's going to be renovated soon, which is good because it needs it. It's kind of a dump. Um, I don't know. I don't have a good explanation for it. You know, they come to Madison Square Garden, and the crowd, hey, the crowd sometimes will be better than other times, but by and large, when you have a crowd at MSG, you know, it's going to be fun. It's probably going to be rowdy. Maybe they'll cheer for the heels and boo the good guys or whatever. You know, Nassau Coliseum is out on Long Island, so you're only talking like 30 minutes away, 40 maybe by car it's not that far away and generally speaking man the uh yeah the crowds are you know i don't know what it is the crowds just aren't as fun at the coliseum but 40 years ago this week was the first wrestling show there 26 years ago this week february 5th 1988 one of the most historic shows in wwe history this was the first edition of the main event which was not a show on Ion Television like it is now with a bunch of jobber matches. This was a live special on NBC, featured the WrestleMania three rematch between Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant for the WWE Championship. Still the greatest number of viewers to watch pro wrestling on network television. 33 million people. I can't even wrap my head around that number. 33 million people tuned in to watch at least parts of that match. Also, it was the first appearance of the new Winged Eagle Championship belt that is still to this day my favorite pro wrestling title of all time. And I know many of yours as well. Uh, Interestingly, in the pre-match backstage promo with Hogan, because on these specials back in the day, like Saturday Night's Main Event and all that, a wrestler would make his entrance, and then Vince McMahon on commentary would throw it back to Mean Gene in the locker room. They'd interview his opponent, then the opponent would come out. So they go to a, a backstage promo. I think this was after Andre was already in the ring, and Hogan's back there with with Mean Gene. He's still wearing the old 1986 Hogan uh, championship belt, which was which was smaller. But when he came out for the match, like magic, the winged eagle appeared around his waist. That, I always I it always sticks out in my mind. It was just it was so obvious. Those promos were pre taped many many hours earlier in the day, probably but why nobody thought okay he's wearing the 86 belt in the promo but he's coming out with this brand new title belt hmm that's a little weird so uh, anyway that was that was a, a historic match i mean again this was the the match where they did the evil twin hebner angle it's also the only championship reign that andre the giant ever had which was brief it was uneventful but at least he could you know people can say andre was the champion at some point um this was Earl Hebner's debut in WWE. His brother Dave was already a referee. Earl was working for the NWA. They poached him over from the NWA and the way they did this was great. I mean, this was it was a great angle. It really really was cuz certainly when Earl came out to officiate the match, nobody knew the difference. You'd have to really know the Hebners to be able to tell one from the other and you know, watching on television, I'm sure most or in the in the building cuz you're not that close to the ring. Nobody knew the difference. Dave was always a little bit heavier than Earl. Uh, but the storyline is that before the match, Earl, I guess, I don't know, he maybe he tied him up and put him in the, the stationary closet. I don't know what he did to Dave. But Earl officiated the match. Earl was paid off by the Million Dollar Man. When Andre got Hogan down and, and went to pin him, Hogan got his shoulder up at the count of two, maybe even the count of one, and the referee just ignored it, and he counted three. Referee's decision is final. Title changed hands. Hulk Hogan's four-year championship run done over and that's when Dave came out and there's the image of Hogan looking at these two referees it's like they're looking in the mirror Hogan Hogan doesn't understand what's going on he can't believe it Um, and then came that classic promo after the match where Hulk is in the back crying like a little bitch oh my god Uh, Hogan is just crying he's just hysterical and he's yelling, you know, how much for the plastic surgery, Mean Gene? When I turned around, they were identical, identical. And it's just like it's that classic Hogan promo. Where if you if you hate Hulk Hogan, you love that promo because this guy, he just he lost everything. He lost his belt, he lost the match, and now you get to watch him cry about it. And the storyline going into the match was that Ted DiBiase had said he was going to buy the championship, and Hogan wouldn't sell. He said, "No way." So Andre wins it, and immediately he relinquishes it to DiBiase. And that's another funny thing, because if you go back and watch it, when Andre surrenders the belt to DiBiase, not once, but twice, he refers to it as the tag team title. I still don't know what the hell that was all about. Uh, So he surrenders the tag team title to Ted DiBiase, and uh, they even had, you know, he was announced as, as the champion DiBiase was at a pair of house shows after this. Uh, before Jack Tunney went on television, he declared the title vacant. That led to the WrestleMania Four tournament that the Macho Man won. Uh, so there, you know, if you were one of those people to go to those house shows immediately after this, you uh, had the rare sight of Ted DiBiase wearing the title and being introduced as the champion. Now, this show wasn't only historic because of the title change and the twin Hebner angle and all that. Uh, this all ties into WrestleMania Four in a different way. The show opened with an Intercontinental title match between Honky Tonk Man and the Macho Man Randy Savage. The plan had been for Honky to lose the belt and drop it back to Savage. Savage would be a a two-time Intercontinental Champion. Well, the problem is Honky Tonk Man refused to lose. He has said in interviews, "I, I just, I didn't feel it was the time. I was still drawing. It just felt like bad business. It wasn't the right time. It had nothing to do with him not wanting to do the job who knows back in those days you know those guys protected themselves they protected their spot because a guy like honky-tonk man was disposable and if you wanted let's say to jump ship to the nwa or something you know how does it look if he's on network television in front of 30 million people doing the job so i don't know what his mindset was this is what he's claimed in interviews i find the whole thing bizarre i mean honky-tonk man at that time was a solid mid-card guy he had the second highest ranking title in the company he seemed to be a draw as a heel people hated him so he was a draw, he was doing well in that in that gimmick, he was so hateable. But to think that he would just say, yeah, no, I'm not losing, and they would kind of have to work around that, uh, is kind of weird to me, but I guess they were going live on television, and, and what the hell are you going to do? So instead, the match ended uh, with a countout win for Savage, and what ended up happening was it altered the course of history, you could say, because Ted DiBiase certainly is of, of the impression all these years that he was getting the title he may have even been promised it at Wrestlemania 4 well to appease Savage they instead put the title on Savage and Hogan was going to go away to make a movie I think no holds barred and Savage would then carry the company as the babyface champion and he did feud with DiBiase but instead of it being Savage chasing for the belt it was him defending the belt and Savage was a big draw He really was. Savage was a a big success as the champion in Hogan's absence. He more than held his own. Poor Ted DiBiase, though, got screwed out of his big championship victory. So he's one of those guys, when you look back, who were some of the big names in wrestling history that never held the title? You think of guys maybe like Roddy Piper, uh, maybe even a guy like Kurt. I know Kurt Hennig was AWA champion, but uh, Jake Roberts. is way up there because as the Million Dollar Man... In that character, he was one of the top guys, he was a good wrestler, had a lot of success in Mid-South, never held the big one in WWE, and it goes back to Honky Tonk Man refusing to do the job to Savage on this show. So there was a lot of history wrapped up in this show, and how it affected WrestleMania that year, and the Mega Powers angle that ended up happening, and all that kind of stuff, Uh, but that was 26 years ago this week. 25 years ago this week, February 3rd, 1989, was the second live main event special on NBC... And this was also a very noteworthy show because this was the show that featured the split of the Mega Powers. Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage, they had been uh, partners for many, many months leading up to this. And, you know, Miss Elizabeth had her two guys and they would uh, they would pose at the end of their matches. And they were a uh, very popular act together. But they were building in little wrinkles here and there. Not unlike what they're doing now with The Shield. It's been a slow build to the eventual breakup Kind of the same thing with the mega powers. You could see the seeds of jealousy in Macho Man whenever Hogan would be posing with Savage's wife. I think anybody in Macho Man's shoes would have felt the same way. I always said Hulk Hogan, when you really look at it, in that storyline, was the real heel. Because the way this guy would act, I think it was when uh, they won their Survivor Series match in 88, Savage was just beaten down badly by the heels. Hogan wins. Hogan's celebrating. He picks up Elizabeth... I think he may have had his hand on her ass. I mean, if I'm Randy Savage, I want to tear this guy's head off his shoulders. So I think Savage in this in this storyline had every reason to be jealous. And I always looked at Hogan almost as the heel. Um, but you know, folklore has it that it was all Elizabeth's idea—the whole uh, concept of the Mega Powers uh, alliance—and then them breaking up and having elizabeth really be the driving force between them supposedly was all her idea which if it was she was a very smart lady because that is one of the most successful famous angles in the history of wwe uh, i'm a big big fan of the mega powers and i'm a big big fan of the angle they did on this show was the mega powers against big boss man and Akim, the twin towers they do the match elizabeth takes a wicked bump And Elizabeth never took bumps back then... But she took a a hell of a bump... Because what happened is... Akeem threw Savage out of the ring... He threw him out with such velocity... And such force... Savage just... I mean he annihilated Elizabeth... He completely wiped her out... So now both of them are down... Hogan goes over... He doesn't know who to check on... And he decides... I'm going to pick up Elizabeth... And I'm going to carry her to the back... And... Meanwhile Savage already got back in the ring... Now he's all left by himself... He's getting the shit kicked out of him... By the Twin Towers... The camera follows Hogan backstage. They put Elizabeth on a stretcher. Instead of going back to help his partner, he stays with her. So the camera follows them into the you know the medical area. Uh, we see some really really poor acting by Hulk Hogan, including uh, a miscue on the uh, live special. It may be edited out if you find it on YouTube, but on the live special when they came back from commercial, they showed Hogan crouched down on his knees, holding Elizabeth's hand. You know, like praying, praying that she survives. I guess and all the crying and the weeping and everything that he was doing before he stopped and you can hear him uh mumble under his breath you know like give me a countdown or something so he was waiting for a countdown to know when they were back on the air not realizing they were already back on the air and then he started crying all of a sudden so that was kind of embarrassing but Elizabeth is like no no I'm I'm, I'm okay I'm okay go back out there Randy needs you and so he goes back out to the ring and he wants the tag Savage eventually gives him the tag and he slaps the taste right out of his mouth And that's the heel turn for Randy Savage. He leaves Hogan high and dry. Of course, Hogan's Hogan, so he wins anyway. Goes backstage after the match. He's looking for Savage. Where is he? You know, he finds him uh, in the medical area, and they have their big uh, face-off. Savage is like, you've got lust for Elizabeth. I know you. I know what's been going on. I'm playing second fiddle to both of you guys. And Savage waffles Hogan with the title belt. There's another miscue where Brutus Beefcake comes into uh, camera view a little too early. And then suddenly he disappears. Another ten seconds go by. Savage is threatening to uh, splatter Elizabeth all over Hogan because now Elizabeth is huddled over Hogan trying to shield him, and Savage is like, "I don't give a shit. I'm going to hit you and him with the belt." Then Beefcake comes back into view, and he, you know, he saves them. And anyway, the angle was very, very well done. Uh, the funny part about it is also uh, when it was over, and Hogan recovers. Hogan is stalking the hallways backstage. I mean, he is infuriated. He wants Randy Savage, and he's.
3: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life.
1: No purchase necessary. VTW. Revoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Looking for Savage. Where is Macho Man? Where is Macho Man? And the two guys that Hogan practically assaults uh or accosts, maybe is the right word for it, while looking for Savage, he, he kind of grabs them, throws them against the wall. The two guys, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. That always makes me laugh when I think back to that. Uh, A young Bret Hart and a young Shawn Michaels were harassed in the locker room, almost assaulted by Hulk Hogan in search of the Macho Man. So my favorite angle probably of all time in wrestling. If you've never seen it, you're missing out. I don't know how it would be for a new fan to go back and watch that now. Maybe it would be kind of goofy. It is kind of goofy, but still a great angle and made them a lot of money. 24 years ago this week on February 6, 1990, WCW's Clash of the Champions 10 Texas Shootout aired live on Superstation TBS. A little bit of backstory to this, Sting had joined the Four Horsemen a few months earlier when the whole group went babyface, and then Sting won a tournament at Starcade to become the number one contender to the NWA World Heavyweight title, uh, which just so happened to be held by fellow Horseman member Ric Flair. So that caused some tension within the ranks. Fast forward to the Clash of the Champions show, and they did a famous angle where the horsemen are in the ring and Ole Anderson cuts this great promo on Sting, basically booting him out of the horsemen and telling him to give up his title shot. Uh, I remember him saying something like, you know, we tolerated you being part of this group. It was really Flair's idea to keep you around. Uh, Sting just couldn't understand what was happening. They all beat him up. Flair told him, you have until the end of the show to back out of that title match, or else. So later in the show, it's Arn, Oli, and Flair representing the Horsemen in a uh, cage match against Gary Hart's team, uh, Great Muda, Buzz Sawyer, and the Dragon Master, which is a fantastic name for a wrestler, uh, and the Horsemen win. After the match, Sting runs down. He's supposed to climb into the cage and go after Flair. Uh, As he starts climbing the cage, though, he blows out his knee. And he can't climb. And nobody knows this. So, if I remember correctly, when they realized, okay, Sting's not coming in, and we'll go out after him, and I think they were beating him down, nobody knew how hurt he really was. Uh, But he just completely blew out his knee trying to climb the cage. And the injury just could not come at a worse time, because Flair was going to put Sting over for the title at the next pay-per-view, at their uh, Wrestle War show. He was the guy that Flair picked to drop the title to. And with Sting gone, they went with Lex Luger instead, and the WCW folks wanted Flair to drop the belt to Luger, but Flair had already promised Sting the championship, and he wanted to keep his promise, so he saw Sting as the next big babyface, he didn't want to do anything to screw that up and go back on his word. So when Sting came back that summer, Flair dropped the title to him at the Great American Bash instead. So all it really did was just delay the inevitable, Sting did eventually get the belt, Uh, I don't know if it would have meant more had he won it sooner, which was the plan, but shit happens and you know kudos to flair for keeping his word because he could have just been like okay and drop the belt to luger and sting misses out on his shot how how would that have changed the course of sting's career potentially we don't know sting owes a lot of his career to rick flair not just for that but because of that first match they had at the clash of the champions in 88 uh the 45 minute draw that put sting on the map and sting has said this before but sting really does owe his career in a lot of ways, to Ric Flair. And Flair looked out for Sting in a way that was kind of unique because all the top guys back then, they looked out for themselves and they looked out for their buddies. Clearly, Flair saw something in Sting. He saw money in Sting. Maybe he liked him personally. And he went to bat for him. And he stuck up for him. And in the end, Sting had a pretty good career for himself. Fourteen years ago this week, on February 3rd, 2000, came the announcement of a new football league owned jointly by NBC and WWE called the XFL which was promoted as real football without those pansy penalties for being too harsh. Uh, Now, I know it's easy to make fun of the XFL, and God knows there were plenty of reasons to make fun of them. You know, those stupid skits with the cheerleaders, the fake feud they tried to manufacture between uh, Jesse Ventura and Rusty Tillman, who was one of the coaches. Uh, Yes, they tried to work an angle between the two of them, but to his credit, Rusty wanted nothing to do with that. Um, And you wonder why Vince McMahon is never taken seriously outside the wrestling bubble. I can't imagine why. So, you know, the fact that it lasted all of one season before they pulled the plug on it and Vince ended up losing something like 30 million on the league, they went from doing gangbuster ratings for game number one, they did like 14 million viewers, down to about a million by the end. When your audience practically vanishes into thin air, that's not good. But to be fair, you know, the media... (sighs) The media never gave it a chance. You know, they mocked it at every single turn. They treated it like a joke. Vince did want to continue with it even after NBC threw in the towel. They still had uh, UPN as a partner to air games, uh, and, and they had TNN, which is now Spike TV. They did still have those TV outlets to air the games, but UPN wanted them to slash SmackDown from two hours to 90 minutes in exchange for airing the XFL games. And Vince basically said, The hell with that, so. That ended the XFL, and uh, and Vince McMahon, you know, was a good sport about it. I remember him popping up in an SNL skit not long after where he was trying to sell helmets and old XFL merchandise and kind of making fun of, of himself, but the XFL, you know, in a lot of ways was, was very innovative. You know, they wanted to make the game more fun for the fans. Uh, the NFL ended up stealing that overhead camera view that we have now on the field, SkyCam, I think they called it. Uh, they took that from the XFL. They allowed players to put whatever name or phrase they wanted to on the back of their jersey. Uh, that's where he hate me came from. Uh, they had the pregame scramble instead of the coin flip. Uh, unfortunately, on the very first play of the very first XFL game, during the scramble, we had the first XFL injury. So uh, so that didn't work out too well. Uh, they did away with the point after on touchdowns because they figured it was a guaranteed point. And you know what? Fast forward to today and lo and behold the NFL is considering doing away with the extra point. Okay, this is what uh, the the commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, okay, this is what he said. He said the extra point is almost automatic. There's one proposal in particular that I have heard about where it's automatic that you get 7 points when you score a touchdown but you could potentially go for an eighth point either by running or passing the ball. So if you fail, you go back to 6. That's what the NFL commissioner said recently in a in a in a statement in an interview. So you can't discount the fact that the XFL was ahead of its time in some ways. Just didn't work in execution. You know, the media bias, I'm sure, didn't help, but Vince did it to himself. He really did. With all the silly shit that I mentioned earlier, people watch football for football. They don't watch football for pro wrestling. I know Jim Ross is a big football guy, big Oklahoma Sooners fan. He tried. He was hoping maybe to get the gig as their radio announcer a few years ago. He didn't get it. But people did not want to see good old JR sitting out there with his cowboy hat on doing commentary with Jerry the King Lawler. That's just not what they wanted. So there were a lot of different reasons why the XFL failed. Uh, Hey, give Vince credit. You know, he tried. He, He had a vision. He tried. And it failed. Also 14 years ago this week on February 7th, 2000, Monday Night Raw from the Reunion Arena in Dallas, Texas, featured one of my favorite matches in Raw history. Uh, It was number 13 on my list of top 30 greatest Raw moments that I did on episode 228 of the Sound Off. Could have easily been higher. It was Triple H and the Radicals, Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, and Perry Saturn, who had all just made the leap from WCW only a couple weeks earlier. Uh, Eddie Guerrero dislocated his elbow his first match in on SmackDown, so he was in their corner at ringside. They faced off with The Rock, Cactus Jack, Rikishi, and Too Cool in a 10-man tag match that... To say that the crowd was electric isn't really doing the crowd justice. It's just It was one of those nights. I mean, it's just a regular 10-man tag. A lot of talented guys in there, but it just clicked. And they had a hot crowd. Wrestling then was still hot. And it just... It was like a, a magical atmosphere uh the match itself was really good but the crowd made it great and uh that match was so much fun to watch triple h hit a pedigree on grandmaster sex a benoit hit the flying headbutt for the pin new age outlaws ran down after the match with lead pipes they all beat down the baby faces until the lights went out and out walked paul bear who had been gone for many months and everyone thought he was bringing out the undertaker least I thought he was bringing out the undertaker undertaker had not been seen since September of the year before when he left to go have some injuries taken care of and uh he was all set to return but I remember I think he tore his peck I remember reading he tore his peck while he was training for his his return so that delayed his return for a few more months that's when he came back as the American badass so instead Paul Bear brings out Kane and JR goes all crazy on commentary about how Kane is back which I always found kind of odd because he was only gone for two weeks. That was when uh, Tori left him for X-Pac. So Kane made a beeline for X-Pac, laid him out, laid waste to everybody else. And then uh, back down that week, he gave Tori a tombstone, hence the name Tombstone Tory. So this was great stuff. I mean, WWE was just firing on all cylinders at that time. Even with Steve Austin, he just had the neck surgery a few weeks earlier. Uh, but... Everything was just clicking for them, and they were putting over new guys. They brought over the WCW guys. Uh, And you look at the ratings. I mean, my God, Nitro did a 2.7 rating that night. Now, WCW was already on the descent. They were already going down the tubes. But 2.7 was not a bad number. And yet, Raw did a (laughs) 6.5. I mean, the numbers that they were putting up back then were out of control. They They almost don't even seem real. Talk about wrestlers and, like, baseball players and people being on steroids and the number those guys put up back in the in the late 90s, like McGuire and Sosa and all that. Wrestling ratings were on steroids. I mean, holy shit, you look at some of these numbers, it just it just doesn't even seem real. Six years ago this week, on February 5th, 2008, Bobby Lashley announced on his website that he had left WWE. He wrote, Circumstances which are out of my control left me no decision but to leave WWE. I cannot go into details of this right now, but like I said before, sometimes people will hate you personally and try to destroy you, which has happened here. Evil has prevailed. However, if you continue your struggle, doors will open around these people. You have not seen the last of me, so please don't stop supporting me. Add Bobby Lashley to the list of recently released. And that was a big deal at the time. Lashley was being groomed as, you know, maybe the next big thing in WWE. He was in that... Battle of the Billionaires match of WrestleMania 23 against Umaga. Um, Probably would have become the first black WWE champion, I think, had he stuck around. But there were rumors that something happened or something was said to him that was racially offensive. Michael Hayes was involved. And I still don't know the full story. I think it had something to do with that. And that's why he was able to uh, negotiate his release and get the hell out of there, because the last thing WWE probably wanted at that time was some sort of racial discrimination lawsuit on their hands, and so that spelled the end of Bobby Lashley. Finally, four years ago this week, on February 2nd, 2010, the death of what I will call WWE during an episode of ECW on Sci-Fi, Vince McMahon announced, "I would like to proudly announce in three weeks' time that ECW will be going off the air." I would like to thank all the technicians, cameramen, directors, producers, everybody, and certainly all the superstars who made ECW the success that it truly was. But I'd also like to thank in advance all of you who will be responsible for the success in bringing a new, innovative, never-before-seen program broadcast at the very same here on Sci-Fi. This will be the next evolution of WWE. This will be the next evolution of television history. Thank you very much. The new show that Vince was referring to NXT, which would be off the air less than a year later, it was moved off television and onto WWE.com. So not quite the innovative concept, I guess, that he was hoping for, although NXT now is in a lot better shape than it was back then. NXT is more than than just a TV show now. It really is the entire future of the company, and, and Triple H deserves a lot of credit for that. And that's this week in wrestling history. A lot of good stuff this week, so I wanted to spend more time on that. If you have questions for the mailbag, again, please email them to me, thesolomonster at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Solomonster. I'll be live-tweeting during Raw Monday night, as I always do. You can find us on Facebook. We have a profile page, fan page that you can like, and a private discussion group, a closed group. Type in Solomonster Sounds Off. You can apply for membership there, over 1,200 members and counting. A lot of good discussion going on there, so please, if you're not a member, you'll want to sign up. We have a lot of fun on that page. We're on YouTube, like I said, check out my AJ Styles Shoot DVD review. It's up on our YouTube channel. I post sound off extra episodes every now and then. I, I put that one up a few days ago, so you can find it there. And uh, leave comments and like that video as well. And you can make a PayPal donation to the show on thesalamonster.com. I do the show free for you guys, and any uh, bit of support through PayPal that you can give is is very much appreciated by me. I put a lot of time and effort into these shows because I love doing it. Uh anything extra from you guys is a bonus and I just want to say uh thank you to all the people who have donated and thank you in advance to the people who will donate. And when you donate you automatically get a shout out on the show at the beginning of the podcast every week. Uh, you don't have to do it just to get the shout out, but you do have that option. And uh, that's about it. I'm looking forward to The Walking Dead tonight, back on AMC. Second half of, uh, what is it, season four? Yeah, that was a hell of a cliffhanger we got at the end of the first half. So I'm looking forward to the season a lot. I think a lot of bad shit's about to go down. So uh, looking forward to Walking Dead, looking forward to Raw this Monday night. As we uh, continue towards the launch of the network on February 24th. They say everything changes on that date. Elimination Chamber will be the final non-network pay-per-view in WWE history. So it is kind of historic in that way. A lot of stuff coming up. We'll be back with episode 314 of The Sound Off right here next week. And I guess that will uh, probably have our Elimination Chamber predictions on that show. And until then, be well, stay safe. Thank you, as always, for your support of the show. And we will see you right back here next week. Take care, guys. You've been listening to the Sala Monster Sounds Off, giving you the good. Because I'm the man! If you don't shut your mouth, I am going to punch you in the face the bad
0: you're gonna prove to the world that all you are is a b-plus player
1: and the ugly and then hogan announces that he's going to defend the championship bully ray is against the same sting who just three months ago lost a match where if he lost he can never again get another title shot what in the fuck just happened
3: well mostly the good
1: <laughs> i gotta get rid of this mess i gotta get this club. This club sucks!
2: The monster
3: sounds off. Since 2007, on thesalamonster.com, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes, The Monster Sounds Off.
2: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
3: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has
1: anyone seen the bride and groom?
2: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. Oh.